well, that's not the agenda of the space. But what happened? <laughs> what happened with the guys at Veritas? Oh, a lot man. of press, and I know that um, the gentleman O'Keefe is no longer there. Uh, what do we know? Because I know they're getting a lot of uh, slack for what they're facing. You know, some people are, are making, um, are speculating that it had to do with Pfizer, but I'm sure I don't think there's any evidence to point to that. What do you know about it, Jim? Because I know you're close to the guys there. Yeah, no, there's nothing to do with Pfizer there. And I don't even think James is saying that. I just, the best I can understand, um, and I'm not, I'm not, I, even though, uh, you know, one of the board members is a friend of mine and I've always considered myself uh, friendly with James. Um, you know, I just think there was an eternal situation, uh, as has been described and they just did not seem to be able to reach a way to, you know, the board had their opinion on it and didn't seem to reach a, a way to, to deal with it with James and things got out into the public and, uh, James has been, you know, since he made the case that they were undermining him, uh, he just, he just left. And I just think things got, got at an impasse. I haven't had a chance to talk to James, but I did, uh, talk to one of the board members and, you know, their, their feeling is that just nothing could get worked out. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate because it's just <laughs> really bad timing. I mean, it just, it's crazy, but everyone's intransigent, and it's it's just sad to see. Yeah, um, their their latest video is uh, you know it's not at the same level as the Project Veritas video, but it's really hard to to kind of hit that same level of uh, reach with anything because um, I think what they've done with Pfizer is probably their best piece yet and their most viral piece yet. But the latest one's pretty interesting. It's a completely different topic, a topic we've covered before. And I think you can see from the title what it's about. Um, and we'll get Slyman to give us a bit of a an overview over that. Um, before we go to other speakers, William, <laughs> how are you doing after yesterday? I'm sure you had a lot of very positive comments and DMs after oh, yeah. curious yesterday. So many. So much love. <laughs> uh, well, good to have you back, man. I appreciate you coming back. Amy, Jennifer, good to have you both. Thank you for joining Thank you for having me. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you. Slayman. So what's the, tell us more about the topic today while we're waiting for other speakers to join. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, there was a video of um, an administrator, basically, or not administrator, but basically David Casamento, who is the assistant superintendent of curriculum in East Meadow School District. And in there, or in the video, there's a few key topic areas that were um, highlighted, one of which is teaching sex education in schools and LGBTQ. The second one was teaching critical race theory in schools. And in the video, they mentioned that they teach it covertly in largely Caucasian neighbourhoods and uh, overtly in other neighbourhoods. And... The third thing was that conservative teachers and administrators weren't being hired for being conservative. Okay, and, and are, are these revelations anything new um, or they, did they catch you by surprise? Um, no, no, I don't think they're new. I think someone vocally expressing that they're not hiring conservative teachers is highly problematic and probably 
is is a is a is probably news. But the other things in terms of there being a division between the right, the conservatives, and the liberals on those issues is none. Okay, I was I was just speaking to Money Penny. Do you remember Money Penny? She's based in the UK. She's been on one of the spaces a few days ago with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just speaking to her, and um, she was she was comparing. I actually, since you're based in the UK, can you compare the 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 sentiment towards those topics in the UK and how how it compares to the US? Yeah, sure, sure. So in the UK, we had this issue around itself a couple of years ago. Um, so the UK was a bit ahead of US in terms of. Uh, incorporating these ideas into the curriculum and making them law and legislation. So in the UK, we got we had something called RSE, which is a relationship and sex education. Now, it was that the government wanted to make it part of law. So every school has to teach relationship and sex education. So that includes, for example, LGBTQ ideas and so on and so forth, which contravene monotheistic religious ideas. Now, in the UK, you have a scenario where the Christian community isn't as religious. And so they're not as vocal. Vocal is very different to the United States. It's, it's, it's a massive difference. Like when you come to the, when I, when I went to the United States, I saw the difference uh, significantly. And then being on these spaces, you see it as well. But in the UK, the Christian community isn't as bothered about these issues. And so, and the Jewish community didn't, weren't vocal either. So you basically only had the Muslim community who spoke about, out about this or against this being incorporated legally into the curriculum so that every school must teach it. Unfortunately, when it comes to the Muslim community, they didn't have the best, they didn't go about it in the best manner. They weren't able to vocalise their arguments very well. And they came across as very um, backward and barbaric. And that culminated in, for, for example, a number of videos coming out uh, where they were framed as being homophobic. And then Pace Morgan um, speaking to certain members of the Muslim community and basically framing them or positioning them as being homophobic. So they failed in the way they were trying to express it because the way to express it is basically defeat the argument of free speech and liberalism and so on and so forth. But because of that that failure, what happened was it became part of law. So now within the UK, it is law throughout the United Kingdom that you must teach, this must be part of the curriculum and it must be taught. Um, so I was um, uh, involved in the sense of because I was part of a school and we were trying to incorporate this into the curriculum whilst taking into consideration um, monotheistic or more specifically, in this case, Islamic values to make sure that, you know, we're not basically children and not, um, you know, children are not parents, you know, you're not children are not getting forced to be taught something they don't want to. And so there was a balancing act and then there was a curriculum developed by um, uh, MS, uh, MS, I forgot organization's name, Muslim Schools uh, uh, Initiative or whatever, where they created a curriculum incorporating it while still allowing Muslim values in there. And so therefore there was a bit more of a slight balancing act. So that's what happened in the UK. So, yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, so before we start digging into the video, my, my first question, and, and for the panelists, I think all of you have been on stage before, but if you haven't or if you forgot how we go, I see Jennifer in, on the stage as well. Um, Feel free to just jump in anytime or put your hand up as we go through the videos, as we go through the discussion. Should be an interesting topic. It won't be as polarizing as last time because last time we were talking mainly about pronouns, which seems to be a lot, uh, you know, people a lot more emotional about it. Um, but we'll see. Uh, we'll see. I think what we educate our kids or for anyone that has kids, what we educate kids in schools um, 
is probably the, the the second most heated debate we've had on the topic following the pronouns. So that should be uh, it should be interesting. But let's kick it off with the following question. And as I'm going to be asking questions from a selfish perspective um, as I learn more about this. Question, actually, Slaman, I'll go back to you before we go to the panel. Why? Like, what made this? When we do spaces about China or about the Ukraine war or even about politics or, or January 6th, nothing has reached the same level of polarization and emotions as this topic. And you were there for the for the for the space we did on the topic a few weeks ago. Um. So, so the reason why this is a lot more polarizing is because you have a scenario where it impacts each individual family directly. Wars in other countries don't impact you directly. You might hear about them on the news. You might read a paper on it. You might see a Twitter space on it, but you, it doesn't impact you directly. Uh, whereas in when it comes to this this uh, this situation, it's impacting people directly. They they have certain values. Every family has specific values, and they essentially want children to hold similar values or even try and understand their their own perspective. And so what happens is when schools are basically proliferating specific ideas that co- that contradict their own family values, that causes a problem. And so the feeling amongst those who are against it is we at home, this should be something which is our domain as parents and we should be able to teach our children what we think is appropriate. Whereas they believe that schooling, the TV, Hollywood, media is proliferating a different idea and agenda, which is contravening their position. The alternative position to that is that they should be taught these ideas in school to get well-rounded individuals so that they have all perspectives and ideas and thoughts. And maybe if they're in a family where they wouldn't learn learn these ideas, this is the only avenue to learn those ideas and positions. So they're the two positions, I I believe. All right, I'm just messaging also see when he's coming in. Um, I want to go to to uh, Amy before we go to the videos and just waiting for the um, for more audience members and panelists to join us. Um, Amy, I'd love your your thoughts on this, and maybe you can give, elaborate a bit further on on the concept of sex education. Because I think sex education has existed for a long time, but I, I'm I'm genuinely curious as to how it's changed and where the line is being drawn today versus what we saw a few years ago. Where, you know, what is okay to you in educating our kids? And where do you draw the line saying, okay, these things shouldn't be educate, educate, shouldn't be taught to our kids? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, as you say, we've, we've had sex education in our public school system, you know, for, for many, many years now. However, sex education was primarily, in a sense, very much more like, like animal husbandry almost, like explaining to kids how reproduction works, how their bodies function, uh, and ultimately how babies are made. Uh, now obviously this has, uh, really, you know, this has a, a, a real reason. We have a, re- we have a very good reason for having this kind of sex education in the classroom because it's practical. It makes practical sense. Um, it keeps kids, uh, obviously it used to be abstinent was taught. Now we uh, we then moved into a place where we were teaching about uh, procreation tools and um, using contraception. And again, this there's very practical reasons for having this. But now, 
unfortunately, sex education is is sort of uh, getting very leaky, uh, and it's being put alongside this uh, gender identity indoctrination. And so sex education is becoming more about uh, literally teaching kids sex. There's Things are coming into our classrooms which are teaching kids um, sexual positions, masturbation, um, teaching them about sex toys, and ultimately... Uh, again, indoctrinating them into uh, the gender identity issues. So uh, kids ultimately, because this, even though um, kids as young as kindergarten are not being taught about uh, sex as in reproduction, they're not being taught about the act or activity of sex, uh, the conversation of sex is starting from a very early age at a very inappropriate age. So you, this is a lot of what Eyes in the Classroom does is it sort of reveals how these conversations are getting started early and earlier because kids are having conversations about quote unquote uh, gender identity, um, which is ultimately a conversation that uh, disrupts their thinking about sex and and so ultimately we're, <laughs> we're, we're really, you know, that word grooming, we're grooming them, uh, to normalize these kind of conversations with adults, which are social conversations and not practical conversations. So these conversations are not, uh, simply practical about you know, what are the consequences of having sex or how does your body function? Uh, these are conversations which are exploring sexuality, sexual orientation, um, and we're doing it at early and earlier ages and parents don't really have the opportunity to intervene. Parents haven't had input on this curriculum. This curriculum is simply happening without the consent of parents. Sarah, um, so my question to you is, obviously, the main focus on this is about teaching sex education with its various components in schools. Do you think that there should be um, some kind of framework in place in terms of when or how these things are taught? Or should it be open, open-ended? What do you think? No, so I think, well, one, I think sex education classes should be a basic biology class, and that's pretty much it. I also believe that it should be an opt-in system for parents to sign a permission slip so that their kids can, you know, opt into these classes. Um, Because what we're seeing right now is it's being subversed, like Amy said, as early as possible, and parents really don't know. And we know that they don't know because um, a friend of mine in Rhode Island, uh, Nicole Salas, uh, she had to submit FOIA requests um, to see what their sc- her school was teaching their kids. And then she was bullied and then eventually sued because she submitted FOIA requests. Um, we know that um, we see it all over the country. Comprehensive sex education is being Im- implemented all the way down to kindergarten. Um, you can look up the state of Illinois' directive on that. You can look up uh, the Learning 2025 initiative. Um, those are two that are being implemented across the country. And then there's a school actually in Pennsylvania that we had a pr- they had a principal at their elementary school that bragged on Twitter that they learned all about gender and how to basically how to teach queer theory to five year olds. Um, and it was from a self-described radical activist. Um, and then that same school denied a, a request to bring me and Chloe Cole at no cost to the district 
up to um, speak and have a conversation with faculty and or students about, you know, the other side of, you know, the, the gender identity debate. Um, it was actually their equity rep that denied their request. So it's happening and they only want to push one side of the issue. They don't actually want to show um, the other side. And yeah, I, I don't think, I think that the biggest thing is making sure that parents know what's going on in their schools and that parents can, um, it, again, not every parent is going to want to have that conversation with their child. It is a conversation that parents should be having with their child, you know, at, in, at an age that they deem to be appropriate, like, you know, the birds and the bees talks and stuff like that. Um, and it's not for schools to teach. But if parents want their schools to teach, you know, this class, then they can have, you know, an opt in system to where they can give a permission slip and and then they can give up their parental rights to the schools. So I'm going to ask, a, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, yeah, before we go to William, I'm going to ask some, some tough questions. Um, and I have no position on this, so it's pure curiosity. Um, what should we teach our kids? Like what, and what are the positive and ne negative effects of, of things that we do teach our kids? For example, I'm sure in the early days, I'm not sure if anyone remembers, I don't, because obviously I, I wasn't, I, I'm still not a parent, but in the early days, um, I remember there was resistance against teaching kids anything to do with sex, like how, how um, you know, maybe the basics of where babies come from, but the interaction between a man and a, and a woman, still in some countries, uh, this is not being taught and it's considered taboo. So now, obviously, we, we, we I think most of us would agree, like teaching kids what sex is and, and, and that's how we make babies, etc., um, is, is acceptable. Now we're kind of taking it a step further, and, and I think, um, and if this is not true, someone could jump in and correct me, but Amy did mention that where, uh, where you draw the line is teaching them about sexual positions, uh, masturbation, sex toys. Um, so like those three points, and I'm kind of focusing a bit on, on sexual education here before we start going through the Project Veritas video, which has pretty pretty some concerning and some interesting revelations. Um so if you, I want to go to, to Amy and, and also Sarah can add on to this. Let's look at like sexual positions and masturbation. I know this is a, a, a pretty tough topic to discuss, but what would you say are the negatives of this? And that's a pretty easy one to answer. And then I'm sure there's an argument as to why they're teaching it. I'm sure there's some, I would love someone if they can tell me like, what's the benefit of teaching this to our kids? Uh, maybe Amy, you want to kick it off or Sarah, you want to kick it off with what yeah, the I'll, negatives I'll... are? Yeah, thanks. So, first of all, you know, humans have been on this planet for millions of years. Uh, we obviously are a thriving species, so we haven't had a hard time figuring out how to reproduce. Uh, I don't think kids have ever had a hard time figuring out how to explore their own bodies, uh, how to make out with each other, how to touch one another. I don't remember a time when that was ever an issue. That wasn't an issue for me. I don't know if it was an issue for anyone else. Uh, but I figured out how to do it just fine. My boyfriend and I figured it out just fine. Uh, and I didn't need my school to tell me. The, the issue is that this is ultimately a normalization of 
a sexual conversation between adults and children. So the topic uh, leaves the arena of strict biology and goes into sex. And it's compounded because the, the compounding is because at such an early age, we are confusing kids about sex in the first place. So when, you know, you have these kindergartners and they're teaching them, you know, you can't know what a boy is, you can't know what a girl is, you you can't know these things. Um, they say, oh, teacher so-and-so, you're a girl. And that, that teacher says either, no, I'm a boy or no, I'm a they, or, or they accurately sex a male teacher. And he says, no, I'm a girl or no, I'm a they. So we are, one, teaching kids that they can't um, accurately recognize the authority of their own bodies, that they can't trust their own eyes and ears, they can't trust uh, their sense perceptions, and that they don't have uh, bodily autonomy and bodily authority to accurately name the world around them. So when this this sort of um, ideology is being put on kids from a young age, this is already a boundary violation. This already creates a confusion. Um, it creates in kids a, a sort of dissociation from their body, and it's very hard to have healthy boundaries and healthy bodily autonomy uh, when you are in a place where you feel like you cannot trust uh, what your own body is telling you, and when you do not have accurate language to name the parts of your body, when you don't have accurate language to talk about your body. Uh, so for me, this is the, the real problem is these normalizing conversations, um, and creating, uh, situations. You'll, you'll hear a lot of these kind of, uh, TikTok teachers, um, and, and even media figures like these Jeffrey Marsh type, type characters who are trying to have private conversations with kids and are trying to have secret keeping with kids. Um, you know, these teachers tell kids, you know, you can tell me about this and it's a secret. I'm going to keep it a secret from your parents. So again, this is these are these are classic uh, uh, grooming tools, secret keeping, um, privacy, uh, and and these kids are ultra vulnerable uh, because they haven't been grounded in healthy boundaries. They've they've been dissociated for a long period of time. So it's, you know, to me, it seems I just, you know, to me, I, I can't think of a reason why you would need to talk to kids about sex toys. I can't think of a reason why you would have to teach them these things. Kids find this out by themselves. And this is the thing. When we leave kids to find this out for themselves, it gives them the opportunity to explore their own bodies in their own way. So they can go based on their own timing, based on what feels right for them, and they can have this exploration of their own bodies without any adult sexual um, image or idea or experience put on it. You know, a lot of these images that are being taught to kids, it puts these images in their brain before they have had a chance to innocently explore their bodies by themselves. So uh, to me, it's, it's, a, it's a violation of their innocence. Amy, can I ask you a question? Do, do you mind? I'm just, just out of curiosity. I'd love just to hear your thoughts on this. Um, um, so just the idea of like, so a lot of, I hear a lot of people saying that, you know, there should never be secrets between, uh, you know, teachers and, um, and, and, 
and par- uh, teachers from from teacher teachers and students and from parents and and I kind of and I understand that because obviously there could be uh, malfeasance and there could be a lot of problematic behaviors there but um, sometimes I would say that kids may be in a position where maybe they don't have parents that they can talk to or other adults in their lives that they can talk to do you think there might be some situations where they might have no one to talk to and maybe they are struggling with some things and that adult isn't necessarily someone who is trying to take advantage and is maybe they're just to listen and to maybe guide them but not necessarily to indoctrinate them do you think that is ever like a possibility or do you think it's always like a problem when you know an adult is in that position Yeah, I think, you know, this is the reason why schools do employ school counselors. Um, And when the child goes to the the school counselor, um, the parent is usually told. Uh, I think there are, I don't, I think it's fine for a child uh, to go to an adult. And and I have been a teacher in my life. I I have um, 15 years teaching experience. So I know that kids come to adults with questions and concerns, but I I think it's that secret keeping. Um, The secret keeping is the problem. It's it's not like I would run and tell uh, uh, the parent every little thing a child says, but if a child says something troubling, that, that child needs to know I am not um I, I'm not here to keep secrets with you and it's inappropriate if I do. Uh, what would be are... troubling? What would be troubling in your view? Because for example, like I can see, okay, if the kid has, uh, well, one thing would be a mandatory reporter situation, right? If the kid is, you know, hurting themselves or indicates that they might want to hurt themselves. But for example, let's say that a child is struggling with feelings, maybe they're gay or something like that, right? And you know, we know that there are parents where that might be something that they're not going to accept. Now, would you think that that is something that a teacher or a counselor, you know, guidance counselor, by the way, not all schools have that, right? Not schools have accessibility to that or not all schools have a good one so that, it, that, it, that uh, somebody might feel comfortable going to. So, um, would that something be something where you would feel like that should be disclosed to the parents always because maybe the situation at home is that maybe that child might be hurt or maybe that child might be uh, you know kicked out or not accepted because you know there's different situations sometimes parents are wonderful and sometimes they're not sure and I think that once if I have mentally as a teacher gone into the realm of um, maybe this child is going to get hurt at home that that is as you said that's mandated reporter territory um so in this sense i don't think it's appropriate to keep a secret I, I don't think like for example if a child tells me something and they tell me something and then they imply if i share this at home i will be hurt or i will be kicked out of my house that is when the mandated reporter has to step in. Um, I can't keep a secret with a child and then send them back into an unsafe environment. If I deem that environment to be unsafe, if I if I think, you know, oh, if they tell their parent they're gay, they're going to get harmed or kicked out, or, if, you know, if they tell their parent about, you know, an identity, they're going to get harmed or kicked out, um, 
to what me. What if they're not going to get kicked out, but they're just going to be, you know, just going to ruin their relationship with their parents, which may otherwise be a pretty good relationship. And that's just one part that they want to keep to themselves. I mean, are children never entitled to have any secrets from their parents? Because we know that kids... There are things that, you know, you, you, I'm sure you haven't told your parents or I haven't told my parents or maybe it, it took time for me to be able to open up and um, have that parent accept about me. Maybe it's not as extreme as being kicked out or, or physically hurt. I, I, I hear what you're saying um, and I can appreciate what you're saying. And of course, kids are bound to have secrets, but I think if I am creating an environment with a child where I am telling them, you know, you can come to me with secrets and I am a secret keeper with you, I just, you know, I really, to me, that is a very big red flag. Uh, I, I wouldn't, I would lose a lot of respect for a teacher um, that told, was telling their students, like, come to me with your secrets. I'm a secret keeper for you. You know, you might, I, I think adults do, and that you might tell a child, you know, <clears throat> things that you share are safe with me. But I, I just think, I know, I, I don't know. I think I don't, I don't agree with creating a vi an environment of secret keeping. And especially when it comes to this identity stuff, because I think what a lot of what is happening is there are secret identities being um, where kids are being walked down these identity paths at school. Uh, the parents don't know. I, I think most, the vast majority of parents, even, you know, when I, when I was coming up, I, I have, a, I had a friend who is gay and, you know, we were, I remember being very worried about what was happening when, you know, if they would tell their parents, but it is very rare. It is very rare that a parent is going to kick out a child. Parents love their kids, you know, and in this day and age, I think it is very, very rare um, that a parent would have, you know, some sort of hyper negative reaction. These are very rare, very rare cases. Uh, so I don't, I really think it is it does more harm than good to tell a child that you are a secret keeper with them. They have their peers. Um, they can come to you for advice. Uh, and you can, you can have mediated conversations with parents if they want to go to their parents with this. You know, I, I think it's always better to share this with your parents and you can, you know, say, Hey, I'll be there in the room with you. I'll be there while you're talking about it. There's a way you can navigate this with your parents because ultimately it's not going to feel good for them to keep a secret from their parents like that. They want their parent to accept them. Uh, and I think teachers can help them walk down that path uh, where they can have a, you know, moderated conversation or they can approach things that are challenging. I mean, that that's part of growth. That's part of learning. Authority is addressing things that, that are challenging. And I think teachers can help kids to do that. I want to, I want to quickly ask um like I'm, I was just researching while you were speaking, Amy. I was just researching the some numbers on parents that don't do a good job raising their kids, and I'll give a few examples. You know, anyone could be a parent. There's no certain criteria. There's no legal requirement you have to meet to be a parent. And this is an observation. Yet to be a teacher, from what I understand, or at least they should be, a strict criteria on becoming a teacher. Obviously, there's always going to be bad apples. Um, the same way, there's going to be a lot of bad parents. Um, but I just think there is, considering that teachers are trained and, and have to meet certain requirements to become teachers, or I hope there is, um, does that make them like, – I just think that they play an important role in case you know the, the, the kid doesn't have anyone to speak to. 
and the parent isn't doing a good job or they're facing abuse at home or their parents are getting a divorce. And maybe you go with Dr. Dinesh. Trying to look at the other side of this and trying to make an argument there. I think Catherine was asking great questions. Yeah. What's your position on that particular point, Dinesh? And I want to kind of slowly also move on to the, the really tough question of um, sex education. Like, where does it stop? Like, what should you teach your kids? Because I've looked into this a really long time ago. And I'm not referring to kids, but like the concept of masturbation. There were... There's a lot of things that even adults don't understand about their sexuality, like very basic stuff. Um, And I was just fascinated. I was watching a documentary on a plane. I was fascinated by how much I don't know uh, about this basic stuff that people – and I thought I know a lot of stuff. So where does sex education stop? Um, and where does it, you know, where does it, where is the line drawn between benefiting the child so you understand they understand more so they 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 be able to make the right decisions in life, and then of course I want you to weigh in on that initial point or where where is where are the boundaries for the teacher? Where does the teacher come in as a, a supplement to someone's parent? Yeah, so you know the only initial pushback that I will give is that it was a very ethnocentric view. In other words, you know we can't judge all cultures by our experience of the world. Uh, really simple example that, that we come across in medicine all the time. A uh, young Muslim female is sexually active. That is a very common situation. Do you think that person is going to be able to go home and talk to mom and dad about their sexual activity? The answer is absolutely not. So let's just be honest about the fact that there's more than just one type of people in this country, and they all have different issues. So that's number one. Number two... So I wanted to bring that up because that's just basic sexual uh, uh, activity. This is not talking about anything beyond that. So we're starting there. By the way, that doesn't, that's not just for Muslim women. That's for a lot of uh, women of faith and, so, uh, and a lot of men of faith, actually, too. So that's one big, big part of it. Then these same arguments were brought up when we were talking about people um, for, that, that had different sexual preferences. And so when we start talking about that, we, 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 there is, it's not such a clear cut line. Um, you know, do I think that people, and I think people know from the other spaces, I think it's absolutely inappropriate. And I think people should be fired for trying to push a sexual agenda on children. So let me put that out there. They should be fired immediately. And honestly, they should be stripped of what Mario was talking about, which is their licensure as teachers. Done with that. And when I, so what do you mean? Sorry, just can you elaborate on uh, teaching sexual, uh, having a sexual agenda? Can you just elaborate okay on what you mean by this? It's okay to be a safe space, but can you imagine going to your pediatrician and your pediatrician's like, "Hey, you know, have you thought about sex with boys?" Like that's not okay. Like that's you know that that is that is that's pushing pretty, the agenda. Yeah, that's pretty far. That's pretty far. So there's yeah. clear lines, and we'll have to come up with a line because again, as a country, we are. I mean, I don't want to say this, but we're still very. It's it's not been that long since gay marriage actually was legal in our country. So we're still grappling with some of the changes that have occurred, and we're still learning about the LGBTQ movement, and we, we still don't know how to actually address this. And so just saying clearly, oh, everybody's going to be accepting, I'm so sorry, that is just not true. <laughs> that is not true at all. Like for, I would say the large majority of parents in this country, that's actually not true. And I know that it may seem different because we all have like our own perspective on the world, I can tell you that that's not true. Having taken care of, you know, people, they sometimes they will come. You will be in a doctor's office with a child. And when I say a child, like, you know, a minor, like 13, 14 years old, and she will be talking about consensual heterosexual sex with somebody of the same age. And you're sitting there and the parents are in the room and you have to figure out what to do. That has to be a safe space. 
And again, the, the, the teachers do come across that a lot more than people think. So just wanted to bring that Dr. up. Danish, that a common Dr. Danish, I have a question. Dr. Danish, just based on what you said, the issue you got is like, where is that line? Because I, I mean, we've had a number of these spaces. I've joined a number of spaces on this issue as well. But in schools, if you're going to teach it and then you're saying there needs to be lines, but where would those lines be drawn? So it's a, to me, a sex ed teacher or a counselor, especially a counselor. So that's why we actually need, in my opinion, much more stringent training on counselors. Because I don't know if you guys know, you were mentioning about teachers, but actually counselors in schools don't have, in my opinion, enough training. And we need to have a much more clear, critical criteria. You can't engage in this, but you have to be a safe space. And and that, there's a big difference. And again, in medicine, we talk this, again, in psychiatry specifically, when you go through your psychiatry rotation, they, they explain this to you in significant detail. No leading questions. You just are an open book. You listen to the patient. You understand what's going on. This, again, what I, as, as I've said many, many times, this is not like everybody, you know, everybody's bad or everybody's good. Like, this is a very nuanced topic that we're still determining. And by the way, Suleiman, to your answer, that line will be evolving. Like 20 years ago, that line may have ended at, hey, as soon as you hear about something, you've got to tell the parent. But as society evolves, whether good or for bad, wherever you sit on the, on the spectrum in terms of what do you think this is, what, what do you think this is leading, we will all have to evolve with it. Um, and so I, I just wanted to kind of push back significantly because just this under, it's, it's a little bit of a, uh, as I said, an ethnocentric view where we're looking at the whole country, which, by the way, is more not like the more heterogeneous than it's ever been uh, to, to try to think that, you know, uh, these conversations are easy to have in people of color or forget about people of color, just in, in any homes of faith, actually, more than anything else. Well, just immigrants also. I mean, exactly. immigrants, we have a lot of immigrants, right? Yeah. So people have very different points like, of views on these things and they're adjusting to, to the, their new landscapes. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, the, the question about normalization, just wanted to mention also, you know, um, we actually don't know what is leading to Gen Z having a higher percentage of LGBTQ. Uh, I think there's this underlying sort of uh, hypothesis that it's because there's been normalization of these, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, of being LGBTQ. But we actually don't know what is actually the, the underlying reason. And I don't think any of us should speculate. Uh, but that that was one other part, which is like, hey, we're just like normalizing this behavior. Well, w you know, and, and uh, one last thing, which is like, hey, we've been around for millions of years. This has never been a problem. It's actually not completely true. You can look at the Hindu tradition specifically where they had multiple, multiple, multiple genders back in the day. So, so Chris, you, you, Chris, you, I see Chris reacted on the part where, uh, you know, the causation correlation on uh, more LGBTQs in the younger generation. So, and, and you're saying what you said, Dr. Dinesh, that we don't know what's causing that. Uh, Chris, wanted to get your thoughts. We've had, we've, you've been on our stage before discussing this topic. So I'd love your thoughts on this particular point before we go to Sarah and Jennifer. Thanks, Mario. Appreciate you having Thanks. me up here. We absolutely know what's causing it. This is a social contagion going on. There's no doubt about it. It's similar to every social contagion we've ever seen in history. And part of it has to do with the teachings in these schools where children are celebrated for having some sort of special identity and made out to be an oppressor just for being white or heterosexual. I have had more conversations in the real world 
out on the street, on university campuses, downtown in cities, traveling around North America for two and a half years now, having more than 10,000 conversations, specifically about gender ideology and the transition of children. But all these topics come up all the time. And these children today, especially those who are struggling, who don't, maybe they're not thriving, they don't feel like they're fitting in, the weirder kids, for example, as soon as they come out with some sort of identity, they're celebrated. So, and they're love bond, like in any cult. So, of course, you're going to get this going on. And for all these kids, especially the girls who are having a tough time with puberty or half these kids who want to transition today are on the autism spectrum, all these kids who end up in these gender clinics have some sort of mental health comorbidity going on. As soon as they come out with a, some special identity, being trans, they're celebrated. I was at Boston the day before I had a protest in January at the Boston Children's Hospital. I was at the unveiling of the new Martin Luther King statue, and this young white woman was coming up to basically yell at me, and this beautiful black mama bear came to my defense, and she talked about how she has six kids, so she had three kids when she was younger, and then she had a bit of a break, and then she had three more kids. The first three kids, they didn't go through any of this. It wasn't in, in existence in school. The last three kids tell her, all these children at school want some special identity, and her middle schooler, who was 11 years old, says that every girl in the school, and she's 11, Every girl identifies as being lesbian or bisexual because it's not cool to be straight. This is just a craze. I don't, uh, Chris, may I ask you, like, do you attribute everything to just this kind of what I guess you would call a social contagion? Because, you know, there could be more than one reason for this. I mean, there there's multiple things that could be involved. One, there is more acceptance, so it's easier to come out. That could be one. Two, there could be a social trend. Three, there could be things, other mental things going on or other conditions that might be kind of diagnosed as such. Because the idea of, you know, you know, somebody just being a lesbian or just because it's cool, I mean, that just seems a little bit uh, difficult to believe, let's say. Do you? Well, I, have I you understand other... what you're saying. I understand yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, is it easier to come out as whatever these days? Sure. Now, I don't want to conflate all these different things that we're talking about as one issue, because they're separate and there are different dynamics in play. But we've had in the last ten years, let's say, approximately a four thousand percent increase. 40 times in the number of girls, not boys, girls, who say they are now trans. Historically, when we look at gender dysphoria, and gender dysphoria is a real condition, I don't really like the word gender, I would rather it be called sex dysphoria, but I'll just, let's call it gender dysphoria. This is a real condition where these children have an intense loathing of their biological sex, and historically, if we go back decades, this affected boys at least twice as much as girls. But we were talking about one in 30, 40,000 boys. Less than half of that are for girls. And we, when we look at all the studies into this gender dysphoria, like the most recent one that followed 139 boys from the age of four and five years old all the way into their 20s, 87.8% of these boys simply grew out of it, and 63.6% 
grew up to be gay. Beautiful. Makes a bit of sense when you think about it. These really effeminate boys, sometimes they grow up to be gay. But now in this last decade, particularly since 2015, we've seen this massive increase, 4,000% in these children, girls, identifying as trans. Have we had a 4,000% increase in kids who are gay? Of course not. That's not how humanity works. Do we have 1% or 2% of the population who are gay? Yes, we do. And I support well, and Chris, gay rights Chris, and people love who they love. What we're Chris, talking about today is something totally different. So Chris, you Chris, say it's hard to believe, but this is what's happening in these schools. These kids, they don't feel comfortable being heterosexual because it's not a special identity and they get rewarded for coming out as something special. Sorry, Mario, go Chris, ahead. Chris, in terms of... No, in terms of, of Slaman, and, and yeah. Slaman, yeah, Slaman, yeah. after you ask your question as well, I just love, I saw uh, William react uh, to, to this particular comment, especially about the 40x increase. I'd love... Um, uh, can, uh, William's thoughts or, or Danish's thoughts on that particular number because it's an interesting metric but go ahead Simon I'll let you ask a question yeah it was just a quick question that basically you're quite right that there's been a 4,000% increase in terms of women um, becoming trans but isn't it the case in terms of women in all forms of sexuality so vast majority of women who are uh, vast, when you look at being gay vast majority of women I think I can't remember now but I'm sure it's like 80% of the community who is lesbian or gay is actually lesbian so isn't it just women who basically have been influenced a lot more or impacted a lot can more can i just correct you said becoming trans and identifying as trans they're two different things children at 11 or 12 say i identify as something do not have to demonstrably be that they could just use verbal expression do you see what i'm saying yeah, that's fine. Okay, so we're, we're, we're yeah. talking about a few things here. I think, first of all, if we're going to talk about the trans issue in particular, we need to define what does it mean? Because if we're saying that children are transgender, well, what does that mean to be transgender? I can tell you what the director of the Boston Children's Hospital's gender clinic says it means, because I have a video that their own gender clinic deleted from their YouTube channel. I have 40 videos that they deleted from their YouTube channel but I recorded them before they did. And the director at the top-ranked children's hospital in the country says that it is things like a little girl who tries to pee standing up or a boy who doesn't want to get a haircut or playing with the opposite gender toys, quote-unquote, these are all signs that your child is transgender. This whole movement hinges on one thing and one thing only, and it is sexist, regressive stereotypes the body positive message we should be sending to these children is that they are beautiful just as they are that there is no right way to be a boy or a girl that if a girl wants to climb trees and play in the dirt and throw around a football and wear jeans and have short hair well guess what she's 100 percent beautiful girl because there's no right way to be a girl but in this culture today these types of children, and yes, kids who would grow up to be gay, and I never assign sexualities to children because we shouldn't do that. We should just let them be kids. But, my gosh, why are we telling children who don't conform to stereotypes, who aren't fitting in, that they're born in the wrong body? That's an abusive thing to tell a child. This whole idea tells kids that there's something wrong with them. But that's prompting them to tell them. Isn't the idea that you give them the free choice of what they want to be and say whatever they decide is okay? Well, they can I think do whatever for the they purpose want of... as an adult, 
but you don't get to choose if you're male or female or not. You just are. And there's no right way to be a male or a female. Now, if someone has legitimate gender dysphoria and it persists into adulthood, where the vast majority of cases it doesn't, and there are all sorts of academic studies to support this, the Academy of Medicine in France came out last year saying it's impossible to predict which of these children will grow out of it. But we know from all of these studies for real gender dysphoria that was prolonged and severe from a young age that 80 to 90% grow out of it. If these children who are suddenly experiencing what we call rapid onset gender dysphoria, which doesn't occur until adolescence and is almost exclusively girls who, shocker, have a harder time in puberty. Well, look, look through history. Girls, especially, there's always some social contagion going on. This is nothing new. So, Chris, I I think the things that get conflated a lot in in conversations about gender is, is, well, gender and sex, right? So those are two sort of different things, and they do get sort of conflated, and and so things get confused. And then whether somebody identifies versus, you know, born or, you know. So I I think for the purposes of this conversation, I think when people talk about it, often it is about, you know, that whole self-ID thing. Uh, but I would love to kind of, cause I, cause I did notice like Mario that William was <laughs> disagreeing with his thumbs up down. So I would actually love to hear some of the counter arguments that William, you might have to what Chris says. Um, I, I think there's some interesting arguments that Chris has made, but would love to hear if you have points to, to, to debunk on that. Yeah, so on the point of the 4,000% uh, increase, um, I, I commented in the original, uh, I guess, thread about the space, an, an image of the history of left-handedness that I would suggest um, people listening maybe go and check out. Um, but I think that this graph does a very good job at explaining why we're seeing an increase in Gen Z um, identifying as LGBTQ. Um, and the 4,000% figure, I, I think, is very misleading. Um, it's only a very, 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 very small percentage of people who have historically identified as transgender. So you're comparing extremely small numbers. So a 4,000% increase might sound like a lot, but if you look at it as a, you know, percentage of the population, it's really not that much. What's the, uh, what, what, 300, what's the 300,000 children last year, last year, 300,000 children between the age of 12 and 17 were diagnosed officially with gender dysphoria. Out of how many? In the United States. Well, how many kids are there? That's a huge number. That's just official diagnoses. So you're saying, oh, this is, you know, yeah, this used to be shockingly rare. No one who grew up my age ever heard of this thing. No one ever heard of this until 10 years ago. But now you've got a million kids saying they're transgender. Well, you just you just double like that, that doesn't number. include the kids under twelve. That doesn't include Hold the on. ones who weren't so, diagnosed. So that's uh, Chris. That's uh, so that's children under the age of eighteen. Is that correct? Probably that nineteen. Just just the age of twelve to seventeen. Oh, seventeen. That and that's just last year. Okay, these are new diagnoses just last year, not including all the other kids from previous years. And these are like diagnoses for insurance purposes. These aren't the kids who are saying they're trans who haven't received some sort of official diagnoses because really the only reason they diagnose this is so they can bill Medicaid for it. Otherwise this wouldn't even be in the DSM five anymore because the trend from all these trans activists today is to say that this isn't a mental health condition whatsoever. It's just that you have a gender identity oh, it's, and that it it's, might uh, differ from your biological sex. So, so let, let me finish my, my point. I was yeah, go ahead, William, go ahead. The, 
with, with the chart. Um, if, if you look at the history of left-handedness, it's had a you know two and a half uh, you know times increase over uh, you know from the period of I believe it's like 1930 to 1950 or so, and it's not because all of a sudden kids were born you know more genetically to be right-handed uh, or, or sorry left-handed. It was because it was more socially acceptable society created you know d- different ways to you know they weren't teaching in school you have to write with your right hand they were letting people um you know try out both and you know, whichever hand worked better for them they they wrote with that hand and it's not it, it was a, a matter of a cultural shift from saying you know this is how everyone has to be to letting people figure out uh, and kind of removing the stigma of you know, against people being seen as have, you know being defective or it being some sort of you know some sort of thing that's wrong with them if they're writing with their left hand. Because if you think about that today, many years later. Okay, hold on. First of all, this is what we call a logical fallacy. You're not actually addressing the subject at hand. You're taking this to a brand new point of left-handedness. This is like when people say, "Well, guess what, Chris? Clownfish can change sex." Well, I've got news for you. Human beings are not clownfish, and we're not talking about left-handedness. We're talking about children who are being taught that they're not their biological sex and that they can change sex and that they won't find true happiness unless they're given puberty-blocking drugs, which halt their physical development, receive the opposite sex as hormones, and even get surgeries. And yes, they're doing surgeries on kids, and I have all the proof from the so-called transgender health professionals of the world that you could ever want to see. So let's not give these fallacious arguments, please. This has nothing so, to so do how, with how many kids, left-handed how many people being last suppressed. Year, how many kids last year in America got these surgeries? Since you said you have all this data, um, can you, could you let everyone know what that number is? These specific numbers on surgeries aren't released, but we do have evidence from all of sorts of transgender health professionals that they are doing surgeries on kids. I have a couple insiders. I have, I won't actually, I won't say where they are because I don't want them to get found out. But where we had one gender clinic in the United States starting in 2007 at Boston, there are now approximately 300. And there are waiting lists at all of these places. At Seattle, for example, there are hundreds of kids on the waiting list. And we have all these young adults, too, who, yes, they're adults and they can do whatever they want, but they can just walk into, a girl can walk into a Planned Parenthood when she's 18 years old, and she walks right out of there with a prescription for testosterone. So there are these, there's this oath that you might have heard of called the Hippocratic Oath which says, first, do no harm. Doctors are never supposed to go to the most invasive procedure right away when Chris, dealing you, with something. Do you mind yeah, with this, they question. go straight to hormones, puberty blockers, and surgeries. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. So, Chris, just a quick question. I'll go to other speakers. Um, so I was just looking at the numbers because the 40,000% increase, it, it, it just sounded really alarming for me. So I started researching. 4, I'm not saying 4,000, sorry, 4,000%. I'm not saying it's not alarming. Uh, I just wanted to give you some, some uh, numbers in context. Um, body dysphoria, while I couldn't find the rate of body dysphoria or the, the metrics for kids, in general, there's 0.5 to 1% of the population um, relate to having body dysphoria uh, or they claim to Mario, have body actually, dysphoria. I actually have a Reuters article. I can send you the link if you want to tweet it out. Um, but the numbers cited before were off by a few orders of magnitude. The number of uh, new, diagnosis, uh, new diagnoses in the United States for people uh, for gender dysphoria from ages 6 to 17, the total number 2021 was 42,000. So I believe the number stated earlier was in the like a half million, and then it later became a million somehow. But the numbers are just wildly off and being exaggerated. Yeah, it's, because when we talk about a million, we're talking about cumulative years. 
So you can try and spin well, this that's not however what, but, you want. No, 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 no. But I'd the like earlier, you to tell me, Legate, what does it mean no, no, for child transgender? No, no, no. One transgender? second. You one second. That? One, no, what does second. it mean for so, child to be transgender? So hold on. What does that mean? So, yeah, I'll, I'll, so William, William, I'll let, you, I'll let you finish your point, William, and answer Chris's question. Um, and then we'll go to another speaker. Yeah, so, so you said very specifically that that was the number of new cases that year. That, that was Yes, 300,000 between the age of 12 and 17. I'll find it and I'll send it. I'll put it up in the mail. <laughs> okay, well, then, then you got to get that input of Reuters because that's completely, completely wildly, I'll let you, wildly so, off. Yeah, I'll, yeah, let you, I'll let you guys... So yeah, I'll, I'll let you... I'll, you, I'll, you I'll, can, get, we'll get both, you we'll can get both links. You over whatever you like here, Legate. The facts are there's an absolute explosion. They did a survey of all the high schools in Pittsburgh. 10% of the kids said they're transgender or non-binary. There are 300 gender clinics where there used to be one. There used to be none because this wasn't an issue. So you can nitpick over what numbers you want. You can find different articles with different figures all day long. That's not the point. The point is that our children are being taught that they have a gender identity that might differ from their biological sex. And they're also taught that just because they don't conform to stereotypes, that they won't find true happiness unless they medically transition. This is a regressive, sexist, ludicrous thing to be teaching a child because they are beautiful just as they are. So tell me, Legate, one question. What does it mean? For a child to be transgender, I, I and is there and is it maybe maybe to kind of elaborate on this question? Money, I mean, Penny, I can answer you, that you, question if you want. I, <laughs> if I, 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 to go first. Yeah, I mean, unlike a few people in the space, I I don't really have a super. What I would say is a, a well informed opinion. So I'm not gonna. I'm not. Gonna so I'll go. I'll go. That. Yeah. So what, what what I'm gonna do is, Catherine, I'd love your thoughts on this, and also Money Penny were touching on an exact question earlier. So maybe I'll let uh, Catherine and Money Penny answer that question before we go to other hands that are up. But Catherine, yeah, did I you want to give this? Give this. Uh, there's go a ahead, big Money difference Penny between identifying as and being. How many 11 year olds know what it is to be and to be transgender is a huge leap from being identifying as. And I think, I don't know how the statistics the break thing. that down. But what I want Those to ask is, thing. where is the danger and harm in a girl identifying as lesbian or bisexual? Where is the harm in that identification? Okay, now you're conflating two separate things. Okay? We're not talking about being a lesbian or bisexual. That's and, that's, and that's different. not an identity. We're talking that's about sexual orientation as anyway. being a sex that you are not. Well, so, okay, Penny, identifying or being as transgender. To, There's a massive so difference. What does it mean? No, they're not. Identifying and being is the same thing because this isn't a biological condition. The whole thing is based on well, identity. We've said it's so a trend. It we've said it's so a Penny, style thing. Answer me this. What does it mean to identify as transgender? Why would a child well, identify if I asked my mean? 12-year-old niece or nephew why their friend identifies as transgender... Their response would probably be, well, he believes that he should have been born a girl and that he's hoping to have surgery when he's older. That is a, a an answer that I would expect to get from them. Okay, now, that doesn't so mean he is transgender. That's not an answer. What does it mean? What do you mean it's not an answer? It's an 11-year-old answer. Please stop cutting me off. That would be wonderful. What does it mean to feel like a girl? Well, I... Do not know because I do not have that extreme of gender identity myself, although Correct. I am bisexual and I will openly say that. So I have so been I've questioned on these things. Thousands of times. I've asked this question thousands of times. Not one person, not one can tell me what it means 
to be transgendered. Do you know why? Because they feel comfortable in either gender. That's certainly where I feel. I feel I can no, play no either one can role. Define what it means. Well, not ever. because all it means. What it means to feel means happy in yourself. All it means is maybe they to just feel accepted. The Hi, I'm speaking. Sorry for speaking while you're interrupting. I apologize. All it means is that they might associate more with the stereotypes associated with the other sex. Well, guess what? That's totally fine. It doesn't mean they were born wrong. It doesn't mean we need to stop a child's physical I'm development. I'm agreeing. I'm agreeing. Correct. I know you're agreeing. This is the confusion that people on the far left have about this issue. Because when they come to me and they're yelling at me on the street and they think I'm the devil himself, I'll just say something which I believe firmly and they can't help but agree with it either. I'll say, look, there's no right way to be a girl or a boy. If a girl's more masculine, if a boy's more feminine, beautiful. What's wrong with that? And I'll just stop. And they have no response because they know inherently that that is true. But they have this blind spot where they don't see that we are pushing stereotypes to such a degree that just because a child defies them, that that must mean they're trans and they won't find true happiness. Gender identity, Chris, what does it mean? Uh, that's where I disagree, because I think I there is a what? dramatization to that, which I do not agree is something that necessarily reflects what is actually happening on the ground, which is where an 11 or 12 year old child can identify or say verbally or tell their friend or even their parent that they identify as because they feel comfortable being another gender. They want to be accepted and loved and happy and healthy, even having that belief and having an open mind to having surgery if they feel that is what they want at a later stage. It does not mean that that changes their body and their genetics at the time they identify and say that. Can a child identify as an elephant? A child could say anything. You and have a president who place? identifies as having an imaginary friend he shakes hands with. Now that doesn't wonderful, seem normal, but it still happens. Wonderful effort to, again, sidetrack this conversation. Can a child identify as an elephant? And if not, why not? Well, I think mine is more uh, appropriate than talking about elephants, to be honest. Why is yours? Why? You've why, got a president how, how who actually has an imaginary friend. How can I My brother used to identify as a fire truck, so I'll throw that in there. So it does seem like kids yes. can identify as kind of whatever they want. And and is and would your nephew actually be a fire truck? No, but I mean, so, they're kids. So, so I want to go no. to to the to, def, to a definition I, I have the if if you don't mind, Chris. So, so I'm just going to go to a quick definition, and I want to get Maze's thoughts on this before we go to other hands. Um, so, uh, Chris, you are asking for a definition of of what it means to be transgender. I'll just read out a definition online, and obviously, some would agree, some would disagree with that definition. Being transgender means that an individual's gender identity does not align with the sex they were assigned at birth. Gender identity yeah. refers to a person's internal sense of their own gender, which may be male, mm -hmm. female, or a combination of both, or neither. Sex, on the other hand, is typically assigned at birth based on physical characteristics such as genitalia and chromosomes. Uh, Maze, I know your stance on this, so well, I think Chris well, would agree with your stance. There's on one this, problem so. with that definition, though. Well, hold That's on. a circular definition because it says transgender is you have a gender identity. Well, what's a gender identity? Well, okay. actually, Chris, can I, can, because I didn't get a chance to, to, sure. uh, to speak to that, but one thing that you said earlier is that you'd rather have the 
sex be sort of the definition. And I think in legitimate cases of gender, um, I always get this wrong, dysmorphia, but I say, uh, I, I'm saying dysphoria. it wrong. Uh, dysphoria. dysphoria. I always mix the two up and I can never get it right. But anyways, dysphoria. Um, essentially, I, cause, cause gender identity to me is what you're talking about, where it's like, it's, it's like putting on, you know, a dress or makeup, which, you know, anybody can do that, whether you're male or female, it's how you behave, right? It's, it's, and, and that has nothing to do with your sex. And I think in people who, who really are trans, it is more about them feeling like they are physically in the wrong body, which I think has to do far more with sex. Now, that doesn't make them that other sex because they're born a certain way so they're still going to be trans because they're going to have to make certain changes and they're never going to be able to completely transition let's say into a different form because something is always going to be different but but i think that is distinctly different from somebody just sort of appropriating you know or 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 just putting on you know makeup or putting or growing a beard or or putting on pants it it's it's a feeling of, that is of, what this comes down to if yeah. you look at the most used resource in the world it's this cute little picture of a gingerbread man which is called the gingerbread person now this resource you can look it up it's in schools everywhere it's in gender clinics it's in children's hospitals it's even used to train staff at children's hospitals about what gender identity is because everyone's those confused things about this. Get deflated. Oh, You're right with but those hold up. It defines your gender identity as being if based on doing, your personality, your job, you're doing exactly what your you're hobbies, money, money, your likes and dislikes, and your roles in society and expectations upon you. So tell me, anyone, what does your job have to do with your gender? It, what do your it hobbies doesn't have to do with your but gender? That's not, but that's just that because, is what is because some people... But that's the problem because some people or many people have chosen to sort of misinterpret that and, and to sort of use it in other ways doesn't make it sort of a moot point for the people who legitimately have this, uh, gender issue or sex issue, really. So I think there's like this the cognitive dissonance going on where people don't want to believe that this is what gender identity is. It's too simple. They say it has to be more than that. No, all it is is stereotypes. That's it. Every single resource you ever read will point to that same exact fact. Now we have a person here, Sarah Higdon, who should speak to this because Sarah does identify as transgender and Sarah is on my side of the equation here. So maybe we should move this mic over to Sarah for some comments. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, I actually I want to comment on this, too, because that is, there is a lot of conflation that happens with gender identity and gender dysphoria. Right. So gender dysphoria is a feeling of uncomfortableness with your secondary sex characteristics that you were born with. You're not born in the wrong body, but is it an, is it an, it's an uncomfortability that the brain creates. And yes, kids can't understand what that actually means most grow out of it because it gets conflated with stereotypes most of the time um maze i want to i want to go back to that same question um the, i want to get through that definition uh, before we go back to to educating our kids 
looking at sex and gender um, as two separate things, is that is that a fair way to represent the topic? Is that fair to say someone could be a male, could be a female, but could feel different, could identify different to what their biological sex is? Is that okay for kids to do? Um, and then we could talk about where education comes in. I, you know, is it okay? I mean, if, 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 if it's happening, it's just happening, right? But I think that a lot of times there's phases, you know, that people go through. I myself went through that. I was the biggest tomboy in the world. And sometimes I wondered, like, why do little girls like, you know, dolls? I hated dolls. I used to climb trees, bring home frogs. I used to, you know, play with all my brother's gadgets and, you know, and, and had, there been some suggestion. People are forgetting the power of suggestion. So if I was in kindergarten and some of the curriculum that I've been reading through that they are implementing today now in, in schools where, you know, there's like a little teddy bear named Thomas that, you know, feels like he's a girl trapped in a boy's body. Then that suggestion to me in kindergarten would have probably been something I would have wondered about. And whenever we're, you know, consciously like, oh my gosh, there's another option, then we're going to begin to start seeking the information that confirms it. I just don't understand how the life cycle development of children is not being considered when we're creating content around this in schools. Am I so bringing it back, back to schools, Ms. Ms. Bringing it back I, to schools. I, do you I think there should go. be no? Can I, can for... I add one last thought before I go? Yeah, go ahead, Amy. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, so I, I just I want to add two little things. Um, and one I want to say that there is this is not we we have to not look at this as if it is um something that has organically grown from a marginalized class like the women's rights movement or the gay rights movement this is not an organic uprising of a minority this this is a top down organized agenda that's that's why we see the proliferation of this so massively so this is big banks big media big tech big pharma all colluding uh, to uh, with Hollywood and publicity and the media to tell a singular story. You notice that the narrative uh, told in the the left wing media there is a single narrative. Uh, there's there's not room for multiple narratives because this is a very controlled narrative. And I want to observe that um, Alex Aaron reported on this of the gender mapper where there is collision between big tech, um, big pharma, and getting into the school system. So in 2014. The CEO of Tumblr uh, got himself, David Karp got himself on the board of Planned Parenthood. So why is big tech getting involved with Planned Parenthood? Well, Tumblr is the site where a lot of these kids are getting groomed and indoctrinated into this ideology. So he teamed up with Planned Parenthood uh, on this issue, and then they teamed together with Glisten, G-L-S-E-N, to get into the school system. So they specifically got their um, curriculum into the system. Now, Planned Parenthood used to be a number one provider of women's health. Now it is the number one provider of quote unquote gender um, affirming medicine. So puberty blockers, wrong sex hormones and whatnot. Now they have curriculum in the school and they are indoctrinating kids, you know, as I said, as young as kindergarten. So this curriculum is teaching kids how to think about this. They are basically creating patients and then they are providing a solution. Forbes magazine reported on this. They reported that there is $20 billion dollars 
dollars uh, in trans tech surgeries alone. So this is um, a, a market that is larger than all of Hollywood. This is a massively growing market. The title of their article is Why Aren't More People Investing in This? Uh, Out Leadership, uh, on their website of Out Leadership, they say that the global market for um, LGBT in general is is a $5.2 trillion market. So this is a massive market. This is is from the top down, from big government, from um, uh, uh, the UN, from major NGOs uh, being pushed on us from the top down. And then just to the topic of the transgender question, the trans kids, you know, we, there, there, we, we need to make sure that kids understand their bodies because there is no, as Chris said, there's no right or wrong way to live in your body. And the only feeling, I want to really make this clear, the only feeling associated specifically with our bodies are physical sensations. All other quote unquote feelings are just emotions and any human can have any emotion. So the only feeling that pertains to being female is the physical sensations of those specific internal organs. So there is no way for kids to feel something other than their body. And in fact, we always feel our body. So even someone who is quote unquote transitioned, they still feel the physical sensations of their body. They are no closer to feeling uh, like the opposite sex because they have no access to those physical sensations. Any emotions that they are having are human emotions. Um, and as Chris said, this is a do no harm issue uh, because kids are coming with these confusions that are basically taught to them, indoctrinated from the culture. They look at fashion magazines. They look at the music industry. They look at Hollywood. They see their biggest stars with their breasts cut off, looking all glamorous. They see this look walking down the runway and in the music videos. This is Bernays level. If you guys know Bernays and Big Tobacco and his campaign, this is Bernays level cultural indoctrination. So this is coming at all of us in a very massive way. This is um, it's it's not like um, the organically growing women's rights movement that was little and then it gained some traction and then it fought for, you know, a hundred years and finally we got the vote. It's not like the gay rights movement where they they sort of organically grew and they came up. Th- these these are all being forced teamed. So this issue is being forced teamed with gay rights. It's being forced teamed with feminism. There's all kinds of forced teaming going on and there's all kinds of social engineering going on. I wish I could stay to discuss this more and I thank you for the space. And I hope that, um, thank you, Chris. Um, I hope you'll let Jennifer speak because she's a parent and she has a really important story to tell. And I'm sorry, I can't stay to hear it. Um, and I also hope you'll let Tanya Marshall speak, uh, because her expertise, uh, in child, um, uh, early development is so essential. Uh, and I, I just, but I appreciate the space and I thank you all. Yeah. Thanks Amy for that. Yeah. We're going to give everybody a chance to speak. Uh, Scott, thanks for joining us. Um, just want to jump off on what Amy said. Um, so there is this notion or idea that there is an alliance between Hollywood, the music industry and big government to proliferate certain ideas. Um, do you do you think that there is this agenda to proliferate LGBTQ values into society? Uh, was that to me, that question? Yes, it was, Scott, yes. Oh, well, uh, you know, I don't think it's an agenda. So here's my frame on it. Uh, if anybody's familiar with the famous McMartin preschool case, that was a case, I forget, maybe the 80s, uh, in which the, uh, the the people running the school were accused of having a satanic ritu- rituals in the basement 
and uh, all the kids had similar stories of horrible abuses that happened in the basement, some kind of satanic thing. Turns out they didn't have a basement, and people who understood hypnosis would watch the videos of the police questioning the kids, and you can just instantly hypnotize a kid into believing they were uh, abused by Satanists uh, as easily as you can convince them accidentally, and that's what the police did. They did it accidentally by the nature of their questions. They were they were leading and suggestive questions instead of just letting them talk. So that was uh, something that police learned, that if you talk to people in a certain way, you will be completely unaware that you'd hypnotize them because kids have such a weak... Um, let's say, boundary between imagination and reality. So th- that almost certainly is responsible for some percentage of what seems to be a growth in that category, and certainly among the kids. So if you've got teachers who have not been trained the way I hope most police have been trained by now because of that famous case, then uh, there's 100% of the variables necessary to create a mass hysteria. Uh, and I mean, not not in the case that they're running around scared, but in the sense that it's a belief system that just becomes spread, you know, almost like a virus. So if nobody, and, you know, the, the, the speaker before me was completely on it, the only thing I want to add is that you know, I'm a, uh, a, actually a trained hypnotist, and I talk about persuasion more than I talk about anything else. And I can confirm that I don't know if 1% of the growth is because of that, or it could be you know, 75%. Uh, I'm not saying, and I want to be clear, I'm not saying that everybody who's trans was hypnotized into it. Nothing like that. You know, I think, I think there's huge variation in humans, and by the time people are adults, um, I'm in favor of them doing what they need to do to, to feel better, follow their destiny, whatever. But when you're talking about kids there's a 100% chance that they're being hypnotized into it. Uh, but nobody would use those words. You know, they'd say persuaded or they're taking on a narrative or they're, they've got peer pressure. You know, you sort of add all those things together and there isn't the slightest doubt. I mean, if you can talk to 100 people with my, uh, you know, limited experience and more, and every one of them would agree with what I just said. But it's it's sort of a field that, was completely ignored with the McMartin preschool situation until some few people who actually knew what the hell was going on analyzed it for him. <clears throat> so anyway, that's the only thing I wanted to add. Uh, but I, I don't necessarily see the, you know, the big uh, strategy coming from anywhere. I, I see it as an organic uh, phenomenon about persuading kids. I think so my question, can I please just, speak? Because... In, 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 in a minute, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll go to you. I'm not sure who that was, but I'll go to you in a bit. Scott, just a quick question about the hypnosis concept. Where do you draw the line or how can we draw the line between educating, which I think most of us would agree that in most cases that's beneficial, and hypnotizing or or, or indoctrinating? Let, let me uh, clarify. Hypnotizing kids is absolutely necessary. You just can't do it wrong or accidentally. So when we tell kids to do, let's say, the Pledge of Allegiance, they're not reasoned people who know why they're doing it. We are hypnotizing them, uh, brainwashing them, essentially, into becoming good citizens. And I'm strongly in favor of it. I think it's it's a good way to basically organize 
a society that can protect itself. And you, you know, could come up with a hundred other examples of that. So it's not a question when you talk about children and, you know, you could also extend this to adults, but you know, we pretend we have a little bit more free agency in, in reality, our, our opinions are 80% assigned by the media as well. But when you're talking about kids, they, they're just completely programmed and they're going to pick up whatever you put in there. So you got to hypnotize them in the good direction, not the bad. You know, pick a religion if that's your thing. <clears throat> uh, pick a, you know, a set of standards, a bunch of morals, and you say this is the way to go. Well, case in point, from the time I came out of my mother's womb, she was whispering, you're going to college. Nobody's going to college in this family except some distant aunt, I guess. But you're going to college. You're going to college. By the time I was 16, it was unimaginable that there was any other possibility you know, even when it was uncertain that I could afford it, that sort of thing. So, yeah, you, you have to hypnotize kids. You just don't want to do it accidentally. You know? How is that hypnotism versus influence? And do you not have agency? As your, like, don't you want your child to have critical thinking faculties so that you can ask your parent, like, why do you think I should go to college? And then as a good parent, you would have discourse and convince your child that maybe that's the right thing for you to do. Is that not the relationship that you want or sing the, you know, or do the allegiance or whatever? You know, shouldn't the child want to question that and want to know why they're doing what they're doing? Is that not a better way to sort of, instead of sort of hypnotizing the child? Well, you know, don't, don't get hung up on the word hypnotizing. I use it so, somewhat generically for strong persuasion. So if you just want to say mm-hmm. strong, it's like super strong influence, but there's, you know, pretty, pretty big overlap in the Venn diagrams there. So to answer your question, um, uh, my, my philosophy is that's up to the parent. So the parent might want to say, well, here's something I'm just going to, I'm just going to influence you and just make your brain do that. And there are other things they might say, you know, this is what I want you to figure out on your own. So I think that would be more a parent decision. But Scott, I think so one your, thing your argument say, seems to be that all children are conditioned in a certain way. So the argument against that is why is it okay to condition them and not teach them LGBTQ values as opposed to teach them it? Um, I, I'm not going to give a value judgment on what parents should teach their kids. I'm just describing a mechanism. So I, I think that's, you know, maybe for people to work out on their own what they're going to what they're going to teach them. What about I mean, I thought that's something that was very interesting that Amy brought up. And I've been thinking about that a fair bit is that you have these machine machines now, right? These corporate financial entities that do, do seem invested in, um, you know, these medical organizations that want to have surgeries or pharmaceuticals that want to quote unquote treat children. And I think that in many ways, you know, that is harder to go against because I think somebody mentioned Hollywood and I agree like Hollywood, you know, that's just people have opinions and they put them in the arts and try to maybe influence because they believe in it. But what do you think of that? And is there, is that in any way even reversible once that is such a big industry? Yeah. So, so here's the way to think of it. If you think of it as a system, as opposed to a goal, you know, the goal might be everybody does what's good for them, whatever your goal is. But the, the systems that we're continuously using in the, in the United States are systems that guarantee bad behavior. So Russell Brand says this better, right? So we monetize going to war 
is profitable for the wrong people. Monetize pandemics. Do you think we're going to get another one? We monetized it. How about racial division? We monetized the fuck out of racial division, uh, which is what makes me interesting. <laughs> That's probably why you're, you're still still listening to me. Um, but, of course, we, we have absolutely monetized uh, transitioning people and apparently kids as well. So there isn't any way you can get less of it. You know, as soon as it's monetized, that, that machine is going to just, just chug along. So I, I think you can almost forget some kind of like global intention. We, we just has a, a system that is consistently monetizing the worst behaviors, but we don't see it as a system problem. We see it as, gosh, why are there so many, you know, issues in this domain suddenly? There's, there's no, <laughs> there's no mystery to it all. We hypnotize people into it and then we monetized it. There are two systems which are both broken and they, they one, one worse than the, the monetization other. is very much the insurance industry, whereby when somebody has an element to them, and this is close to genetic testing, you know, if you have a certain type of difference to other people, you can be charged an additional premium for that. So it is in the interest of the insurance industry to start to rank and add things to their list of quirky, non-normal factors. And I'm sure these types of gender dysphorias, behavioral issues, whatever category you want to put them in, they will add premium to the insurance industry, which is then underwritten and then is going to be creating extra revenue but for that, that industry. That However, argument falls apart, from though. the point of view, can I, can I just finish this? Because it is important. From the point of view of the government that is providing a benefit structure, a 401k or underwriting the day-to-day living standards of a person who has extra needs, let's say, that becomes more prohibitive, more expensive, and therefore would be dissuaded. So there is a balance in it. Yeah, that, that argument to me falls apart. It falls apart, what Scott was saying, money pay, money, uh, I guess money penny. Um, the monetization, I do believe in that, and, and I'm very happy someone brought that up instead of saying it's the it's the government or the ruling class that's creating this. Typically, these things happen because of money. Uh, but it falls apart here because the people who are investing in this don't have an economic benefit from people transitioning. And that's where it falls apart for me. So, pe- Excuse so pe- me? Excuse people me? are saying... Are you not aware of the money that surgeons are making on this? That who are making are you not aware of the money that pharmaceutical companies are making? I'm, I'm not. Puberty blockers. I'm not saying hormones? that, but people. One puberty blocker in a lot of times. A, a lot of times, people. A lot of times, people. I was speaking. You, said you interrupted me. Okay. You don't like to be interrupted. Bill, you don't like to be interrupted. So let me just finish and then. And Mario, I'd like to respond to this ridiculousness. So go ahead. Yeah, sure. Yeah. When Bill get when a lot of people here point out Bill Gates, Bill Gates is funding this and. Tech companies are funding that. What do tech companies gain from exactly what you're talking about? This is currently a $2 billion a year industry. All right. So this is currently a $2 billion. Okay. Who's going? So, so Joe, the the commentary around doctors are making a lot of money. I don't know if you know this. Surgeons make a decent amount of money in the U.S. regardless. Uh, but so, so, you know, there's not like a significant additional. Uh, value proposition for them. The one that's the the, the surgeons that are doing breast 
reductions. We're doing breast augmentations. It's not super complicated. So I uh, just wanted to kind of push back that, you know, trying to make it into a medical industrial complex. We have a lot of issues in medicine. We have a lot of issues with pharma. We have a lot of issues in many, many different respects. But to try to make this into like, uh, you know, I, I think the commentary, uh, you know, uh, that, that Scott was making earlier around the system itself is 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 doing exactly as it was intended, I think is a more appropriate thing than trying to demonize specific doctors. I mean, that's kind of ridiculous. And then... Oh, hold on. Hold on. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Doctors that, can make money in all sorts of ways. Exactly. Hold on. Hold on. I'll let, I'll let, uh, so, so, yeah, so, Scott, I'll let you respond to that particular point before going back to Chris. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, I've got a background in economics and stuff. So I, uh, when I, when I say something's monetized, I'm not talking in the limited sense of the you know pharmaceutical industrial complex that may or may not be helping or or part of the problem. But I see everything from the media getting clicks, and then that basically is hypnotizing the masses because they mostly get their opinion of what is good behavior from TV. So once the people learn it's bad behavior to say, don't do this, and it's good behavior to say, yes, let's do more of it, they, they're, they're sort of under the yoke of the media and social media telling them what they can and cannot say because we don't have you know the, the full freedom to express ourselves without uh, Scott, one question on that. But doesn't the argument slightly, or isn't it slightly falling down now? Because if you look at it, what one would describe as woke ideas are being proliferated in Hollywood and those movies or TV shows are, are not doing as well. So if it was just about clicks or monetizing and that was the sole basis that by p- putting these ideas in there, they're making more money, that would then the correlation should be that those movies are doing better and hence why they've got them. But in the reality, well, what we're seeing is uh, left leftist ideas when they put into movies aren't doing as well at the moment and Disney's an example of that. Well, you know, but also Hollywood has a long history of trying to get that Academy Award by making god awful movies that appeal to some, you know, some interest group. So it's actually fairly common for them just to make shitty movies that will make their friends slap them on the back and say, "Good job on that." So as long as they get paid, they probably, you know, if you're a director or something, uh, you don't necessarily have a percentage of the film, do you? But you, but you can make a terrible movie that does well, but to do a mo- to make a movie that financially is failing in the box office, that it does not defeat the point you're making. Is is my is my question? No, I I think that we're actually bumping into the I hate to use the jump to shark moment, but I think a lot of people are realizing that following this crowd isn't working, and that's the most notable example. The the failure of the big, you know, movies and TV shows should be the the call that says, you know, there's there's a limited uh, there, there's a limited amount this slippery slope can slip, and you just found out there, there's an economic brick wall. So I think well, we I might think be. Hold on, ahead. it's naive to say that money isn't involved. There's one surgeon alone who admits that he's done two thousand of these top surgeries. They run close to ten thousand dollars a piece. That's twenty million dollars. Now, I do agree. Yes, they could be doing other things in medicine. And there are true believers in this pseudo-religious movement, or this cult as I call it, who honestly believe that there's such a thing as being born in the wrong body, even though no one can define what that means. But this conversation, I have one really important point, and then I'll stop talking. I just put up in the nest 
a very important article that anyone who wants to have an intelligent conversation about this needs to read. This is from a whistleblower from the Washington University Transgender Clinic in St. Louis. Her name's Jamie Reed. She describes herself as being politically to the left of Bernie Sanders. She calls herself a queer woman. She's married to a trans man, so a biological female. And she worked at the Washington University Transgender Clinic for four years. She just left in November. And when you read this article, and I'll put the affidavit that she submitted to the Attorney General of Missouri in the nest as well, you will see who these children are that are showing up at these gender clinics. These aren't children who are thriving. These are children who all have some mental health comorbidities going on. Half of these children are on the autism spectrum. These children have eating disorders. They're cutting. They have terrible home lives. They're in foster care. They're all Chris, kids how many, struggling how many, mightily. How many They're coming directly from the psychiatric unit in the hospital into the gender clinic. There was a boy who was sexually abusing dogs, and they just gave him puberty blockers straight away. She wondered to herself if they were doing this just to chemically castrate the child, because these drugs have been used to chemically castrate pedophiles. Chris, That's what Chris, these drugs are. Yeah. Chris, how, just, Chris, if you could answer the question. How many yeah. of these surgeries are happening? So how many are happening per year? We don't have the exact numbers because these hospitals don't release them. Okay. We can reliably say that tens of thousands of children are being given puberty blockers. The number for cross-sex hormones is higher because a lot of these kids start transitioning when they've pretty much already gone through puberty. So a lot of these girls, they've gone through puberty and they're just going on testosterone when they're 15 or 16 and they're not receiving the puberty blocking drugs. But these puberty blockers are given to children at what's called Tanner Stage 2 of puberty, which is the very onset of puberty. For girls, this is when their breast buds have started to form. They haven't even had their period yet. And what child who is 9 or 10 years old can possibly understand what they're signing up for? And whereas we know statistically that 80 to 90% of these kids grow out of it, when you start them on this medical pathway, you're locking them in. And instead of letting them grow up where most would grow out of it, they go on to the next phase, which is the opposite sex hormones, 98% of the time. These drugs and hormones combined are sterilizing children. So, Dr. Dr. Danish, I want to go to you briefly yeah. on this point, and then I do want to give uh, Kelly and Jennifer the chance to speak. Uh, they've been waiting for a while. But Dr. Danish, on this particular point that Chris mentioned and the discussion we had with Scott earlier, uh, like my question is, would a solution, and probably this question should be to Chris, but I'd love to get your thoughts on it first, Danish. Uh, would a solution be to educate but not give them the ability to to, to 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 have some permanent change on their life, to be able to change their gender, for example, um, or take any sort of medicine, but at least educate them and then they can decide when they're an adult? Would that be a, a fair solution in your opinion? Because there's a lot of resistance on what we educate kids. So I think, you know, in terms of a very simple solution to this, one, one thing I wanted to mention is, you know, while Chris and I may not agree on a lot of things, I think when it comes to puberty block blockers for children, I think we don't know what the long-term effects are. And I think it's a very fair question to ask, which is, hey, uh, you know, do we know... But even, even but Danish, sorry, doctor, even if there's no long-term bad effect, negative effects, okay, even if we know that, if that's a proven, should we give kids the ability to have a permanent impact on their life long-term at such a young age through through transitioning their gender or taking puberty blockers? 
I, you know, I think that's like a question for a bioethicist than a doctor. I think, I, I think that ultimately my opinion, this is my personal opinion, not my medical opinion in any way, but, uh, my personal opinion is that a child on their own should not have the ability to make this decision until that child becomes an adult. However, we have a lot of things that we do in this country where parents are able to make these decisions for children and are able to make these decisions alongside their children. We have that as a, as a setup mechanism for care in general. Now, you know, the question really becomes if you believe that the treatment for gender dysphoria should be gender reaffirmation. I think that's a, a whole other conversation. But if it's truly been medicalized, right, like which is what has been done, and the, there's, there is consensus and it's being offered as a treatment, if the parents have informed consent about the long-term harm that comes from these drugs, uh, and, and the child is aware that, hey, this is an irreversible impact that can occur, and I don't believe, I think a lot of doctors don't believe that there's a reversibility to this, like a lot of people claim. Uh, the, 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 it's very, very well established that there are long-term issues of uh, blocking puberty. There's a lot of early data that's concerning. And so, so just kind of taking a step back to answer your question very directly, I think as long as the parents and the child are aware, in the framework that we have in healthcare today, they, would, they should be able to uh, uh, get the gender reaffirming treatment that they, that they desire. I just, uh, for, for me personally, yeah, I, I just don't think that anyone's doing, I don't think people are actually doing informed consent. That's the biggest issue right now. And so before we jump in, Chris, I do, sorry, just quickly, Catherine, I'll let you jump in. Just want to tell the audience what we're going to do now. We're going to give other speakers a chance to give us their thoughts, and then we're going to play the clips of what Project Veritas, um, you know, the, the, the videos they leaked, similar to the Pfizer videos a, few, a while ago on this topic. So we'll do that in a bit. But yeah, Catherine, uh, go ahead, and then we'll go to Kelly, Jennifer, and Sarah. Yeah, so this is my my question, and I think for for Dr. Danish, Dr. Danish, he's gonna kill me one day. I was trying so hard to get it, and I knew oh, I'm so bad with. I have some weird issues around pronunciations, but anyways, um, my here's what I grapple with myself. So I, I see the concerns that people like Chris have. I think very valid, and we can see that they're va valid because we have a lot of detransitioners and or a lot of people who, um, you know, I think the number you cited is what ninety three percent of of people who who no longer are um, identify as trans um, past a certain age. So. However, we still have that 7% or so that, that do. And having that, um, condition is very, can be very painful, very difficult to, to deal with and need some kind of care. And so what happens is that we have this kind of standard of care that's, that's now very affirmative. And it is a standard of care that even a lot of European car countries have moved away from and, or haven't even had. And, and, and there's a much higher sort of degree of, you know, um, standards that people go through to, to receive the care. But, um, what do you do with that 7%? Uh, because you do have the risk of giving sort of, let's call it, as people call it, medication to the wrong people where there is damage that can be done that's really severe and can impact their lives. So what is sort of the solution moving forward? Um, 
to deal to treat the people who do need it? I think it's very clear to me. The answer is we should not. Right now, all the medical societies, I think, are working off of poor data and making recommendations based on those. And I think we need to have a real conversation around what data is actually being used to make these decisions. Um, and until we have a true consensus based on high quality evidence, I mean, you guys have all heard me talk about high quality evidence possibly previously when we talk about other aspects, but for some reason, when it comes to this specific area, we actually have very modest or low quality evidence. Uh, you're talking about case control studies. You're talking about like, Again, any doctor can tell you that the quality of the evidence is not, and it's tough because, you know, we're talking about a small number of people, but still, until there's higher quality evidence, I would probably significantly, uh, I would tell parents that, hey, right now, we actually don't know what the, tr the appropriate treatment for gender dysphoria for children is. And when we do you know, we will be offering it for now. Counseling makes sense. Or maybe we can do gender reaffirmation without the meds. But, you know, th that's my personal opinion. Uh, that's how I would practice in this situation. Again, not medical advice, but that, that's how my, you know, the concept of first do no harm. I I'm, I'm very much against like, hey, adults should be able to do what they want. If they, you know, if an adult, adults do stupid things all the time. And, uh, uh, you know, if someone is doing this because of a social contagion, which I don't believe to be as you know, children are more persuasive, but with adults, this is not, in my opinion, a social contagion phenomena. Uh, when it comes to this, I think this is just people feeling more free. But again, it's an opinion, not based on data. Um, I think adults should be free to do whatever they want. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, most of the time they're making the right decision for themselves. I think when it comes to children, because we don't know the long term impacts of these medicine, I think we have to be a lot more careful. Dr. Dinesh, yes. can I, can I ask have, you something? Sweden and Finland and England, where the medical bodies have all came to that, have all come to that same conclusion that there was no evidence to support this, and they've done away with it. And all we're doing here in North America, especially in the United States, is people like myself are asking for the American Academy of Pediatrics to conduct a systematic review of the evidence. They refuse to do it. They're refusing calls from their own member doctors to do so because they're ideologically captured. And when they do conduct a review of that evidence, they'll find there is none to support this, as other countries, which are very progressive, have already done. Can I, I ask quickly, someone who, so before, who knows? Job, before you do, before you do, I do want to give quickly the chance for Kelly and Jennifer to jump in. Then we do have some news that just dropped as we're doing this space that's very, very relevant. So the timing is perfect. So before mentioning the piece of news that just dropped, uh, we're just looking into it now. Uh, I want to go to, to uh, Jennifer and uh, Kelly, just give us their thoughts on the discussion, and then we'll go back to Joa. Thank you. Thanks for letting me speak, Mario. Um, uh, there's a few things. I, I was really glad to see Scott come in and talk about the recovered memory syndrome of the 80s. That is something I was going to talk about because it's something that I see happening with kids. Um, and I think uh, Money Penny used the word prompting, which I thought was interesting. I would use the word led. Um, and I, that's what happened with my daughter. My daughter was being socially transitioned behind our backs by a teacher and a therapist at the school. Um, they were using male pronouns and the new name without letting us know. And, uh, you know, the, the therapist told me she wanted to be in the cabin for fifth grade camp. 
overnight camp. Uh, I found out later that it was actually her teacher who asked her if she wanted to be in the, the cabin overnight, a male teacher at that. Um, and, uh, you know, he didn't ask her, is this what you want? He was, he, he, he was asking her, isn't this what you want? And she said, yes. And later she told me that she did not want to go to the camp at all. I didn't realize at the time that she had been put on the spot in that way. Um, but now I know it's because she was uncomfortable. She told me, you know, it wasn't her idea. It was her teacher's idea. She didn't want to be in the boys' cabin. She wanted to be with her friends, the girls. So her teacher, who I actually believe thought he was being helpful, um, was putting her in a, in a spot, you know, putting her in a position where she felt like she had to say yes. So it's very, very much like the recovered memory syndrome in the 80s. Um, and I think this is happening all over the place. Another thing that I heard somebody say, I think maybe it was you, Catherine, that the kids don't do this for popularity. <laughs> well, my daughter was trying to be an edgy teen. Another thing, she's what would be historically called a tomboy. Um, so she was confused. Uh, she's hearing these messages that that means she might be a boy. She was not sexually attracted to anybody. She first started saying she was aromantic, um, and then she eventually ended up on transgender. That's another thing. These kids go through all these different identities. They feel like they have to choose one of them. Um, and, and, and then they, this was a social experiment my daughter was having at the school. This was something she was getting attention for at the school. And the school was, um, you know, it's something that kids might do on their own, experiment with these kinds of identities. She was trying it on like an, a kid of, you know, from before times would have, you know, tried on punk or goth. Um, she, uh, but this is a hard thing then to discard once you ask the entire school to, uh, you know, change the way they talk about you, change the way they perceive you. Uh, it's really hard to go back on that. I have friends who their kids willingly moved to another state so they could get out of it when they realized it wasn't right for them. Um, I also have friends whose kids um, were endlessly bullied until they said they were the opposite sex. And then they had a, uh, an, sorry, uh, an assembly thrown for them. So kids are definitely doing this for attention. There's a lot of different reasons they're doing this. It's also being sold to them as a panacea for any problem they might have. For You know, it's vulnerable kids who are doing this. Uh, it's autistic kids, just like Chris was saying, autistic kids um, that don't identify with sex stereotypes. <laughs> you know, they don't, they don't even know how to. Um, it's kids with mental health issues. It's kids who would be gay. Um, so there's... There's a lot of different things going on with this. And, and, and furthermore, they shouldn't be keeping this from parents. And the reason why is because for one reason, for one thing, I didn't know this teacher had asked my daughter this question. I would have reacted differently when they asked me about it had I known that. But there's worse situations where I know of a parent whose um, child was having mental health issues, which is a typical comorbidity with this, um, mental, having other mental health issues. And they were not told that, the, that their child was being socially transitioned at school. And this child attempted to hang themselves. The parents had no idea what was happening at school. So it's absolutely wrong. Furthermore, it's, um, 
it's it's triangulation. It's teaching children first that you're you're the savior, the parents potentially the the you know dangerous, um, and that they can't trust their parent. Which is also, as many people have said, that's grooming. You're grooming children to think that um, it's they should keep secrets with other people and from their parents, which is making them vulnerable to other predators. <laughs> Even if the, the teachers aren't really predators, which I don't believe this teacher was. I honestly, I don't know, but I don't think he was. I think he really was really how, trying to how help. Is, um, how is, uh, before going to Dr. Danish, see if he's got any thoughts on this, just on, on the last point, keeping secrets from parents, that's, I'm just trying to remember, as a kid, I think that was relatively common. Yeah. Like, there's conversations you'd have with your teacher. You might not be comfortable talking to your parent about it. Your teacher is meant to be your mentor. I think we should... This um, is a huge secret that the whole community is on. You're teaching them the no, whole I'm, entire community. Yeah, I'm just referring to general yeah. secrets, not on this particular point. On this particular... Okay. Like, look, okay, let's say let's say you do... Let's say there's a kid that genuinely is curious about, uh, you know... Uh, uh, what, what identity they are, you know, what, what their identity is. And let's say their, uh, their parents are, are Muslim, okay? And they're very strict on these things. And they're, they're, they're very strict Muslims. Um, they don't, the kid doesn't feel comfortable even discussing this with their parents. Or let's say that the kid feels like they're, they're gay or they want to explore whether they, they're homosexual. And they Mario, don't talk to, the to their parents about this. Being gay is Mario, not so no, I'm no, using, no, I'm, but the, the point, I think Mario is not a parent. No yeah, sure. Here, this is, I, I, so, no Chris, hold on. Like Doc Danish, does. hold on. So, so Danish and, and, uh, yeah, sorry to mute you, Chris. I muted a bit ago because you were speaking the same time as Danish, but I'll get your thoughts on this yourself and Dr. Danish. Um, so I'd love your thoughts. I'm not a parent, so that's why I'm, I'm more asking a question. Um, but uh, like, should there be other alternatives other than just the parent to seek advice, Chris and Dr. Danish? Okay, sorry. It does my he- it does my head in to hear this because here's the deal with teachers. If teachers think there is abuse going on at the home, they are already mandatory reporters to call CPS. But that's but not, not this. No, not, not abuse. Secret, I'm not referring, not, not referring to abuse, Chris, Chris. Hold on, hold on, Kaddish. Yeah, yeah. Hold on, this Dr. Dadish. So I'm not referring. Not so Chris, just back the, to the question. Hold on, Dr. Dadish. I'll give you the mic. Can I finish my statement? Yeah, yeah. Like, why do you guys yeah, yeah, so always Dr. Dadish, I'll give you. This is so Chris, important. Chris, this is so Chris, important. Chris, I understand. Chris, Chris, Chris. I know, I know. Dr. Dadish, I'll give you the mic right after. So, so Chris, just back to the point. I'm not referring to abuse. I'm just referring to seeking advice from someone other but than your parents. Let me finish my point. Yeah, okay, oh, go ahead. I'm just clarifying are, my question so you teachers, can finish your point. Okay, teachers and administrators are hiding this from parents on the basis, on the assumption that they will be abusive to their own child. They, they always assume no right, that. They have no right to go at this from the default that the parents are a threat to their own child. No one loves their children like a parent does. These teachers are viewing themselves as a savior of this child. They have no idea. Where were they when the parents were laying down with their kids at three in the morning with a 104 degree temperature after having vomited on their bed sheets? Where were they doing all the things that parents do for their kids? Running alongside them, scraping their knees while they're falling off their bike, diving to save them from falling into the brambles. We do so much as parents to protect our kids. And now we have teachers changing a child's name and pronouns at school. This kid is going through an identity crisis. And it is not a benign thing going on. 
when you change a child's pronouns Chris, name, Chris, I've got a question. You, what you are doing every time you call them by the wrong pronouns is you are telling them that they were born wrong. So, so Chris, so, Dan is not very Okay, hold on. So yeah, before the question, another question to Chris, just on that particular point, Dr. Danish, because Chris, you know, I, I'm not going to disagree with Chris's points. Uh, and obviously the love of parents is the love of parents. And I have parents, even though I don't have kids. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's an argument to be made with parents. Um, you know, a kid does need advice that the parents cannot offer. Or, or I, I gave one one such example. So I would love your thoughts on, 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 on where that balances between my question and, and that particular point, that particular concern that was mentioned earlier, and well, Chris's valid I, points. Can I, I never gave any indication, indication that I wouldn't support uh, I don't, my child. Jennifer, sorry, yeah, go ahead, Catherine, but uh, do you mind if I get Dr. Danish to be <clears> trying to speak for a bit on this point, just to balance out Chris's <laughs> point, and I'll go to, obviously, Slayman and Catherine, you both yeah. want to, to take the mic, so go ahead, Dr. Danish. Uh, Catherine, did you have something quick to say before I jump in? Sure. I mean, it's just a small addition to it because I think one thing that gets kind of omitted is also the will of the child. Um, in all these conversations, it's like either the, the right of the parents or the rights of the, of the teachers or the school administration. But what just, about? Uh, Catherine, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, look, I'm going to, I'm going to jump in with an example. I'm not a parent, Chris, Children but there's a kid. I took a, hold on. Just let, let me, okay. So hold on, hold on. Okay. Hold on. Ian, hold on. If children cannot consent, there was a kid when I was in Australia. The, the father was a drug addict. The mother was a, a, a very bad mother and a prostitute and very, very abusive. Okay? That kid was lost. His brothers were lost. He was going through severe depression. I ended up taking the kid that uh, I, was, I was much younger. It was about 10 years ago. I took the kid and started taking care of, of, of that kid. He had diabetes, uh, drug abuse, everything. And you cannot expect such a kid to have... His parents as role models, the love, the quote, love that you're referring to, Chris, that doesn't apply to all parents. And we cannot neglect that kids like this do need role models. They do need someone else. And this is the place where teachers can step in. Now, it doesn't relate to the example of, uh, that's what that I'm saying. It doesn't to relate to the, secrets. they don't get to keep so, secrets hold, about an active so hold on. In that situation going on with an abusive no, father. You, Hold on, hold on. So, so Mario, Mario, that was exactly the, almost a similar point I was going to ask as well because I think you you hit the, hit hit the point there because have you seen these teachers? It's ignoring. It's ignoring. Guys. Sorry, but Chris, I'm just going to ask you a question and then you can answer. Yeah, have so you seen? Ignoring, wait, okay, hold on. Before like you ask a question, Simon, Simon, for everybody, sorry, everybody, uh, yeah. Simon, Simon, I just need Doctor Danish, poor guy, because he gave the mic to Catherine, then I took over. Doctor so, Danish, I'll let yeah, you yeah. comment let me, on that and then we'll walk, go back to Simon. Yeah, yeah. I'm, let me my, walk through a common scenario, Simon. The very common scenario. So, so Dr. Danish, let me ask you then. So the extra thing that okay. I felt like Chris was basically didn't take into consideration, if you can provide more information on that, is there is parents, obviously there's lovely parents, but then there's parents who do partake in child abuse. There are parents who abuse their children. I said so, they are mandatory reporters. If they think there's abuse going on in the home, they have to report it. Okay, now Chris, you're saying I disagree, disagree with a lifestyle. I'm sorry. So can we, Hold on, so guys, can, let me Dr. Danish, go ahead. So, so that, so Chris, you are assuming that there are parents that are going to, uh, going to be accepting of different lifestyles. And maybe that is your home and that's awesome. Good for you. But, you know, for a lot of cultures, it's not everybody from, hold on, I'm going to finish my sentence because I let you finish yours. So, okay. uh, so I'm going to keep going now. So, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, think about people that are of, uh, you know, people that are Muslim, people that are uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, people. There's a lot of other people out there in this country that may not people of faith, uh, uh, like myself, by the way, that that 
that uh, that come from that background, and people may not feel comfortable because they don't want to disappoint their families, and they want so to be Dennis, able to explore. Hold on, hold on. How is hold that on. a teacher's job? To hold on, I'm going to finish. What the parents are going to feel. Hold What's on. Teacher's job? I'm going to finish. I'm going to finish. The parents so, of the child? So, uh, Mario, I'm happy to finish if, if that's okay. No, no, please, yes. Yeah. So I was going to jump into Chris. Just I'll let Dr. Danish finish as you have, please. So, so the Dr. point Dr. here is that kids, when I think back to my time in school, there was a safe space where I could just have a conversation and not worry so much about the judgment from family. And that is, again, a different experience than some other people have. And that doesn't mean that my parents were difficult to talk to or so on. Kids will, if you are sitting or are, are on this stage and trying to act like Kids don't keep secrets from their parents. Man, I don't know. I don't know where you grew up and how you grew no up. No one's Every saying that. Every kid keeps. You hold on. Stop putting Everybody words in my mouth. Keep, I'm gonna, again, finish. I, so I, stop I putting only words have one in my more mouth. Point. Then kids, I won't have to interrupt you if you won't okay. stop putting words in my mouth. Okay, how about that? Okay, make your point. Stop assuming so what I say. If kids can keep uh, keep secrets from their parents and they find a mentor within their school, I think it's completely reasonable for them to have a conversation about something. Without what that having to go back have to the parents. Teachers? Guys, right, here we go. Have you taken okay, a look okay, at can you, oh, Dr. Dr. Danish? Hold on. Can everyone, can everyone, Ian and Dr. And, uh, Chris, Dr. Danish, I'll let you finish your point and then I know Ian was jumping in. And, and it's it's pretty straightforward. I think, I think that ultimately there are some conversations that can remain between. I think this complete like, uh, uh, belief that there should be no secrets, that a teacher cannot keep a single Nobody secret away that. from parents. Uh, when it comes to something that is so private, I think it's especially if we have counselors in schools and things like that. I think it's completely reasonable. I think Sarah, Sarah, Chris, Ian. Yeah, I, I understand. I want to jump in, Chris. It, I know that a lot of the points were referring to, to what you were saying. So I'll give you when they're spoken. Yes, I, I understand. This is why I'm just about to give you the mic. Yeah, and I know Ian wants to jump in as well. My point when I'm trying to speak. I know. Because, you know okay, I'll guys, guys. Trying to interrupt me. Okay. We're done, guys. Ian, um, so I know, Chris, yet. you, you want to... Yeah, okay. I'll... Guys, I would guys. like to let Billboard Chris speak first because he was Perfect. directly okay. uh, addressed by Dr. Beautiful. Danish. And then we'll go. So we'll go to Chris and we'll go to Ian. Um, so yeah, and, and it's in, in the, 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 the discussion here, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm, trying, I'm pretty much figuring out is like, where do we draw that line? What things can be kept secret and what things... Are, and where can that be abused by a teacher? Um, but Chris, I'll let you respond to, to Dr. Danish, Danish's point and then we'll go to Ian. All right. I would just like to finish my point here, and then I promise I'll be quiet for a while, okay? We're not talking about just any old secret. We are talking about an identity crisis going on with a child, where the whole school is referring to a girl as a boy, or a boy as a girl, using new pronouns. As the uh, medical board in England has very well laid out, and you can read a report called the CASS report by Dr. Hilary Cass, C-A-S-S. When you change a child's pronouns, this is not a benign thing. This is a very powerful psychological intervention on a child, where you are continually affirming them over and over and over again that they are something they are not. They are keeping these secrets from parents. Now, let me tell you one quick story. There was a girl named Yaley Martinez in California, her mother is named Abigail Martinez. They are immigrants from El Salvador. Her girl grew up just normal girly girl, wearing princess dresses, all that sort of stuff, got into high school, started getting bullied. I've met this woman several times. I've heard her long testimony, and I'll put her testimony up in the nest. People need to get educated. 
But in high school, she started getting bullied about her looks. She joined the school's Gay Straight Alliance Club, or the Gendered Sexuality Alliance, and she became indoctrinated to believe that she was born in the wrong body. Now, her mother is a Catholic, and because she's a Catholic, the school decided to keep this a secret from her, because they're just assuming that her mother wouldn't be supportive of her own daughter. How outrageous is that? When her mother did find out she was much more accommodating than I would have been, she was fine with going along with the name change. She was fine with using the pronouns. She wanted her girl to get through this. But she knew that giving her daughter testosterone was not the right thing for her. And if she'd known this had been going on for months, she would have been able to reach her daughter sooner. But the state took her into state care, put her in a foster home with other so-called trans kids. And while this daughter was on testosterone, still separated from her mother, devastated, she knelt down in front of a train and the police had to pick her body up in pieces. This is what keeping secrets from parents leads to. I can tell you stories all day long. You should look up the story of Sage in Virginia, who was trafficked out of Virginia into D.C. and then to Maryland, found a month later after being locked in a room, drugged, gang-raped, used for porn. They refused to return her home because her parents called her by her real name, not her new name, Draco. They put her in a group home with boys after she'd just been gang-raped and human trafficked. She was assaulted by the boys in the group home. She ran away. She was trafficked again and found two months later in Texas where the whole thing had happened again. This is all because they're keeping these secrets from parents who love their child more than any of these people ever will. These teachers are going to forget about these kids in three or four years' time. And there is no love in this world like that of a parent for their child. And it's outrageous to suggest that this active psychosocial intervention should be kept a secret from parents. Thank you. I want to respond to that Ian. really quick. Because... No, no, one second. Hold on. It was going to be Ian next, then I'll come to you, Dr. Danish. Uh, mean, so... you... And then oh, we'll yeah. go, yeah, so, so yeah, I know Dr. Danish is at some point relevant to you. Uh, Ian, I'll let you jump in, but also, sorry, yeah. Simon, this, I wanna, Kelly, I just want to let you know that we'll be going to you next because I know you want to share something. We'll go to Kelly uh, next, yeah, after, 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 yeah. Yeah, so, so go yeah. ahead, Ian, and so, then we'll yeah, get Dr. Danish. Ian, you go ahead, but I just got a question for you as well, so if you sit, then you yeah, can yeah, go ahead, ask me the question. Yeah, yeah. so, because um, I feel like th- we've not got a line, and I asked this question to the people who are pro-LGBTQ in schools, and I felt like they didn't give a significant enough a line, and I think, I feel like from the other side, the same thing's happening. So, because we, I'm, I'm get, can we have a scenario where parents, uh, sorry, where teachers, where, where children do not speak to teachers completely without the parents being informed? Because there are scenarios where they need to speak to somebody in school, where maybe they're getting abused at home. So, how do you manage to ensure that still happens whilst having a drawn a line in this LGBTQ issue that... Okay, that's um, a pretty good question. Okay, so I'll try to answer that. Uh, I'm sure Billboard Chris can answer that. I mean, he did mention that it is the duty of a teacher, uh, any care, really. I mean, if a child comes to you and tells you they're, they're being abused, you have to report it, right? That's by law. In most places, you're going to have to do that. However, I will say that the, the way that teachers have gone about things these days, and I'll get to my next point afterwards, is that they've kind of weaponized... Uh, this, you know, standard of care, right, this is their duty to care for uh, for students by claiming falsely that if a student is misgendered in some way, that somehow the parents are abusing them, right? This is their view, and this is why it is an ideological thing. This is not about the teacher genuinely believing, or, I mean, I'm sure maybe individual teachers genuinely believe that being misgendered is so bad 
And the the point I'm getting to that I'm trying to make is that have you guys taken a look at the teachers? We're not talking about the teachers we grew up with. You know, I think everybody on this panel, maybe most of us, grew up on this panel. When we think of teachers, we think of, you know, nice, old, kindly women or, you know, just like normal people, right? Maybe our gym coach is a bit, you know, whatever. But the people nowadays who are, in, you know, who are teaching kids who are not even really teaching because they're really not teaching anything. They're, most of their classrooms are filled with LGBT stuff, right? They're indoctrinating kids. If you look at them, you look at the types of people they are, why their stated purpose is in becoming a teacher. It's not about teaching students. It's about turning them trans. Look at them. Look at lives of TikTok post this stuff pretty much like, you know, 10 times a day. We see teacher after teacher after teacher. And obviously this isn't happening all over the place, but it's happening enough that it is becoming an issue. So, when you talk, you know, when you talk about whether a student has a has a right to, you know, keep secrets from the parents, they say something bad is happening at home. Absolutely, they should have a right to do that. You know, and teachers have a have a right to report all of that stuff. I, I don't think anyone on this panel is even questioning that. The issue is when you have these weirdos, right? These perverts, these groomers, in classrooms, quote unquote, teaching students. What they're doing is they're singling out. The ones who are weird, the ones with autism, the ones who don't fit in, the ones who get bullied, and they're picking them. And and this stuff is extremely well documented. They they even did a conference on this in uh, I believe San Diego a couple of years ago, or maybe last year, where uh, these teachers are actually sharing tips on how to single out students that are weird, right? Single out the autistic student to put them in the uh, the GSA clubs, you know, the Gay Sexuality Alliance, the Gender Sexuality Alliance used to be the Gay Straight Alliance. Uh, put them in these clubs and indoctrinate them and turn them trans. And and the idea is that you take them away from their parents because their parents are putting them in a in a harmful situation where they're not allowed to truly be themselves. That's the excuse. They use the child abuse thing as an excuse to take away parents' rights. And this is happening, you know, systemic-wide. It may not be happening in individual classrooms. There's many teachers, obviously, who are not on board with this. Many people join the teaching profession, which is a very noble profession, I must say, Right not to do stuff like this. They just want to teach kids. But there are individuals, activists in particular, who make it their mission, their life's mission, to get as to trans as many kids as possible. I mean, if we had James Lindsay on the stage, I think he'd be able to attest to that. He did a pretty good... Uh, 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 document. You know, he did a pretty good job documenting in I think 2017 how there was a uh, a study that was conducted, and I believe the University of Arizona, uh, done by these uh, you know woke mindset people, right? These woke mind buyers people talking about how to use uh, students. In 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 their case, it was I believe high school students and college age students to single them out and turn them into vectors for social justice. Right. And and they uh, use gender and sexuality as a means to do so. It's simply a vehicle to promote social justice, to to promote the uh, so-called destruction of capitalism, white cis heteropatriarchy, whatever. You know, they have different terms for it. But the point is, they want to take down the system, and gender is one way to do that. I, sexuality I is another way. You know, I want to go, Dr. Danish, I know you're waiting, but Joa, did, you did send me something interesting. You said, Mario, mm -hmm. why are we? Can I read out what you said? It kind of add a point to it before I give you the mic. So I kind of put, give you some context, Joa. Sure, so you sent me the following. Why, why are we blaming teachers for this? I just checked and they have to go through two years of mental evaluation. So like the argument, which again, I don't want to question the love parents have to their children. And that's not what I'm doing, Chris. So I just want to be clear on that. But I'm just saying that, you know, anyone could have a, a, a child, but so, not anyone could become a teacher. We're going through a process. So maybe that's that, about two years of evaluation. So Joa, uh, so Joa, 
Joe, Joe will elaborate on this point, and then we'll go to Dr. Danish. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, I just checked because when I grew up, I grew up around New York and, and you know, knew some trans people, and they would tell me their horror stories of having to go through the whole process of going through the transition. And so often we can have a conversation about how teachers are influencing students and how it became cool. And I do agree with a, a lot of what Chris said. I have researched this a lot. I, I look at a lot of trend reports about Gen Z, working human behavior. Chris is right. I do have a problem with some things Chris say when he makes it a left or right issue. I think both extremes to the right and to the left are examples of what not to do. Um, but when it comes to the transgender issue, which is what typically is used as an example of why this is bad, they go through two years of mental okay. evaluation before they no. even start any medicine. I have to is address it, should, that. Respectfully, should I have that to, to that. Yeah, yeah, I want you to address it, Chris. Just yeah, let me finish. Thank you. Yeah, that's incorrect. I mean, uh, you can you can. So hold on, Ian, 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 hold on. No, no, Chris, no, 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 Ian. Guys, but Ian. Yeah, you can correct. Ian, Ian, you can correct. Ian, 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 we just gave you the mic for a long time. I just want Joe to make his point. And maybe if it's wrong, Chris or yourself could correct it. And now Dr. Danish has been waiting for Yeah, so I promise I'll give you the chance to correct that fact. And finish off, Joe. Yeah, we have Sarah here who could probably confirm. But from what I saw, and I could be wrong because I only looked at one source. I just know the stories I heard when I was younger. They went through a lot of years of mental evaluation before they even started any medicine at all. So shouldn't it be up to those professionals to make the decision, not teachers at all, or even blaming teachers for transgender people? Okay. So, so Chris or all, Ian, you could respond to this before we go to Dr. Danish. I just want to say, Joe, thank you for being respectful. I appreciate it. I love having conversations with people. I don't love debating so much because debating is about winning. So we should all be able to have a nice conversation about this respectfully. So thank you. Now, that used to be the case, that there was a rigorous process. There were safeguards involved. This whole thing has evolved dramatically, where even to suggest that therapy should be done is seen to invalidate someone's gender identity, because then you're saying there's something wrong with them. And the way this has evolved is that there's no therapy needed. They just have a gender identity that's different than their biological sex. And when WPATH, which is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, had their conference last September in Montreal, right at this, during like the opening ceremony, there were some protesters who rushed the stage and they were calling for the total abolition of therapy. And you know what happened? They got a standing ovation. Now, always, I don't want people to listen to me I'm nobody. We have the proof from all of the transgender health professionals themselves. So required reading for this is what I've put up in the nest. It's six or seven things over right now. And it says, huge news, whistleblower from the gender clinic at the St. Louis Children's Hospital breaks her silence. This is a devastating expose and total confirmation of what people like myself have been saying. There is no process anymore to safeguard these kids or adults. On their very first appointments, they are getting these puberty blockers across sex hormones. They even send, before surgery, what is required before surgeries is a letter of recommendation from like a psychologist. They send these kids to the psychologists who they know will just rubber stamp it. And if they happen to get a child from some outside source who doesn't think surgery is needed, they resend the kid to an in-house psychologist or psychiatrist who will sign off on the letter. That reading is, this is from 
of someone on the far left who's married to a trans man who worked in the gender clinic for four years. You have to read it because this is what's going on at all these gender clinics. I agree with you. The process used to be different. But it's changed dramatically. But so I think the so process, uh, yeah. so the me... process, Dr. Danish, I'll give you the mic. I just want to add on to Joa's point, and then Dr. Danish, the mic is yours because I know you've got a lot of points to respond to. Um, in terms of Joa's point, which is a bit different, Chris's answer refers to to a, a, a more relevant topic. But in general, to become a teacher, unless excluding ge- the, the gender discussion, I'll just read out this quick answer here. Becoming a teacher in the U.S. typically involves getting a bachelor's degree, completing a teacher pro a teacher preparation program passing state licensors exam and applying for a teaching license and then there's ongoing professional development again i'm not saying that the so process Mario, is not cor- maybe the process is corrupt Mar- yeah, Mar- yeah so maybe maybe uh, maybe i'll get dr danish to uh, respond yeah. quickly and then slime uh, you can elaborate on this point because yeah, i've been point. through the teacher training so i can explain but, oh, yeah. perfect perfect yeah so, so i just wanted danish. to really you know more than anything else one uh, agree with chris that what happened to those stories that he was talking about, those people, was absolutely awful. Trying to blame all of that on just having a, uh, having a secret between a teacher and the person, I think, is a little bit of a stretch. There were many things that went wrong there. Again, an awful situation that you could connect all those dots and try to say that it's because it didn't get back to the parent immediately. And again, the point here is that everything... Over time, there needs to be some preparation and some conversation that can happen with counseling. Number two, uh, the the and point. Dr. That... Danish, on this on this point, I'm gonna I kind of add a point to what you said and give you the mic. So I'm not interrupting to move on to another Go speaker. Ahead. On this point, I, I, we can give anecdotal evidence to support the other side of the argument. For example, I know a person um, when I was in high school who was going through, um, you know, again wanted to discuss personal things that the the parents would not be happy with uh, due to religious beliefs so they talked to their teacher and when the teacher did tell the parent eventually um the 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 student was you know I, you know not treated well by the parents i'm not going to go into detail but was not treated well at all and in those cases the teacher sharing that quote-unquote secret with the parents ended up harming the student and there's other examples of this i'm saying there's evidence on both sides of the argument um, so just kind of support the point. Yeah, and that and you made again, just to be clear, in that situation, what happened to those kids? I mean, the first story legitimately made me tear up. So there's no doubt that that was absolutely awful. The, the thing that I wanted to get to, though, is the, the commentary around puberty blockers or gender uh, affirma- uh, you know, uh, affirming surgery. Just want to be very, very clear about this. If... For, so currently, the current guidelines, and WPATH is a uh, transgender advocacy organization, just to be clear. That's not a medical organization that we all, like, that all clinicians, you know, aspire to. You can look up AMA, uh, Board of Ethics. They've weighed in on this in the last six months. Uh, it, it, you know, uh, and on top of the AMA, again, I have problems with them, but they did weigh in on this. There's other guidelines across the world on these types of things. And, and very clearly, Depending on which guideline you uh, believe in, the minimum that uh, that people say, and again, it depends on which guideline. There are some guidelines that say one year uh, life experience in the chosen gender prior to uh, genital confirming surgery or, or gender re- gender reaffirming surgery, uh, uh, and others go as far as three years in uh, you know lived experience or one you know they call it life experience. But yeah. So, you know, just to be very clear, 
this is not common practice. And there's a reason why, by the way, I'm in St. Louis. I don't work at WashU anymore, but you know, this is why it is very concerning what happened at Children's. And I think I had mentioned it the other day. It did concern me quite a lot. Uh, Slyman, you were jumping in. And then what we'll do is we'll kind of give the, the rest of the panel, Kelly, I want Kelly to kick off uh, with the video that she wanted to share and then give the, uh, the rest of the panel uh, the ability to speak. Yeah, course. Yeah, it was just basically I have uh, been through um, teacher training and uh, I was a qualified math teacher. Um, so, And this is the UK. But there isn't a specific training as what was mentioned by Joa. You have a general safeguarding in training, but not this two-year example that Joa gave. So that's in terms of UK. Now, the US may be different. You do the specific training in terms of being a teacher. So, for example, if you're a math teacher, you learn certain elements of math. You learn certain skills on managing children and so on and so forth. So, of course, you have that training. But the specifics of what Joe said, I've not seen that or experienced it. I think you misunderstood. Uh, it's uh, for it's for someone who wants to transition. They need to see a, a medical uh, a psychiatrist for two years to get a medical eval. Not the teacher. Not the teacher. Oh, dude, no, so you weren't even talking about the teacher. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah no, not that's the, not oh, the sorry, case at all today. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. So th- that's it. And, but and just to add a point to that, in my experience, so this is anecdotal, but not just anecdotal, we know, we see the data on it as well. Teachers have a significant influence on children. Like you can make them think what you want. You make can make them do what you want. It's And so therefore, that's the reason why this conversation is very important because the role of the teacher and the impact they have, and I can give many anecdotal examples where I made kids think or make them do something I wanted them to do without them realizing it. So it's very easy to do that with children. So, and so hence why this is important. So uh, Mari, who are you going to go to? I want to go to Kelly. She's been waiting for a really long time, and and she... go for it, Kelly. Oh crap! I'm muted by accident. Kelly just dropped out, so I'm going to bring her up now. Um, she's been glitching for her. So while bringing up Kelly, I'd love to get Sarah. Sarah, I, I want to wrap up the space. I do want Kelly's uh, video. I wanted to share that video um, to talk about it, and then we'll wrap up the space. But I want to get your final thoughts on the discussion so far, Sarah, while waiting for Kelly to come up. Yeah, and it, yeah. So it go, kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. I think any time that you know an adult is talking to other people's kids about sex, that is a red flag. What that does is it ultimately blurs the lines of what is appropriate for adults adults to be discussing with kids, and it brings the walls of authority down between the teacher and the student. And then actually keeping secrets with students like this, like that type of secrets, is it, it hits five or four or three of the five, five stages of grooming. So that would be they get jobs around kids, they end up building trust, and then three is they keep secrets, and then the fourth stage is manipulation, where they'll, you know, we'll tell your parents X if you say you're gay or trans, say, say gay or trans, and your parents don't know, and they say, we'll tell your parents if you don't do X for me. That's not what we're, I mean, I'm not saying teachers do that, but that's what it, that's what, it, that's the fourth stage. So like I said, it's the first three stages. Also, we said there should be a mandatory report, um, and teachers aren't trained therapists. I think that's the key is teachers aren't trained therapists. We have a case in Florida that led to the parental choice bill where the school kept the teacher's secrets uh, about their ch- the child's gender identity because of their Catholic faith from the parents, so they weren't afforded the opportunity to get their child that mental, that mental health care. And because of that, uh, which that is the parent's responsibility, and because of that, that child attempted suicide twice in as many days, and they are suing now 
Um, they're suing their school district, and that is the reason why Florida implemented the parental choice bill and the responsibility to report. Um, so I think those are things that we need to look at when we're talking about, you know, keeping these types of secrets from parents. And I, like I said, I think the key is teachers are not trained therapists. If they are having gender identity issues, they need to see a trained therapist. Mm, like that's, that's the only point that they should be talking to them about that. That's, that's a good point. Uh, Kelly, before going to, to Joanna, Moneypenny and Jennifer, uh, first, thank you so much for waiting so long. I'd love you to share with us the, the video that you sent me via message. Yeah, so that video was actually the work of Abigail Schreier's report, and it featured leaked audio that she was sent from a California Teachers Association training. And I believe I put it up into the chat of the leaked audio clip, and I'd just like to read part of the leaked audio and what was stated in it, if you guys don't mind. Um, Please do. I was referring to it earlier. Yeah, I referenced it. Yeah, it says this, um, and the two teachers are from the area I live in. So we started to brainstorm at the end of the 2020 school year. What are we going to do? We got to see some kids in person at the end of last year. Not many, but a few. So we started to try and identify kids. We totally, when we were doing our virtual learning, we totally stopped what they were doing on Google, right? When they weren't doing schoolwork. One of them was Googling Trans Day of Visibility, and we're like, check, we're going to invite that kid when we get back on campus. Whenever they follow the Google Doodle links or whatever, right, we make note of those kids and the things that they bring up with each other in chats or email or whatever, and we use our observations of kids in the classroom, conversations that we hear, to personally invite students, because that's really the way that we kind of get the bodies in the door, right? They need sort of a little bit of an invitation. So that was just one portion of the leaked audio. Abigail's full report is on her substack. And um, there is now a lawsuit filed by a mother of a student um, and Center for American Liberty is representing the mom, Jessica Conan. But in regards to... Um, the ideologies that are happening in the schools and the classrooms, uh, it absolutely is impacting kids. And what we have to remember is, you know, marketing would not exist if it didn't work. And when you give an adult even or a child repetitious messaging, images, little subtle marketing messages, it does start to cause people and young people to think about these things over time. So let's give an example. When I was in college, during my college years, I was a server at a restaurant. And what you ha- what you have from your managers when you're a server at a restaurant, and if you go through proper training, they'll tell you, we don't want you to just go up and take their order. We want you to give them a specific description of the appetizer that we're featuring tonight. And then instead of just taking their drink order or asking them if, or just bringing water to their table, ask them if they'd like a bottle of Evian and give specific tips of, of what you can refer them to. Now, this is a form of suggestive marketing because when you start to give people these options and put it right in their face, people are more likely to respond positively. So, 
I knew servers at, at restaurants in, in college that never did this. And they rarely had customers who were immediately buying onto those appetizers. And restaurants actually track these things from the back of the kitchen. If you have a manager that's looking to up sales, they will track what server got the most of that particular appetizer or that particular drink on the drink menu. And then they reward that uh, server later. But, um, with regards to what's happening in the schools right now, you know, there was a group, the future of sex education, and they did a 30 decades of research video. And, um, they discussed how they were looking for comprehensive sexuality education in early elementary grades, you know, elements of sexual orientation, gender identity, and expression. And what they said is they said they were glad to find content like this in early elementary grades before cis-heteronormative values and assumptions became more deeply ingrained and less mutable. And we have to be aware that there is a political, um, ideological belief system in, in various theories that does drive some of these teachers and school staff towards activism. I mean, they do believe that some of them do believe teaching is completely political in all aspects and realms. And um, if they believe that there is a concern of cis-heteronormativity in society, and if they believe that children are sexual at birth, which some of them do, and they've openly admitted this, then absolutely there is an effort to promote, you know, try on this, try on that. The other thing we have to be aware of is student clubs, these GSA clubs are intended to be student led. But there was a story by Chris Tremolia from the Washington Examiner, and he actually had leaked documents from the California Teachers Association. And it was an entire packet that he received. And that packet showed teachers how to create these clubs and then how they will fund the clubs and what activities they will be doing with the students, what videos they're going to be showing. And so we have to be aware what you feed tends to sometimes grow, influence. Um, you know, there's a reason why we talk about peer pressure and there's a reason why people spend a ton of money for Super Bowl marketing campaigns because they work. There's ways to influence people. Um, there's reasons why when you have a child having a temper tantrum, people will encourage sometimes uh, letting the child have that emotion, redirecting behavior or redirecting them to something else. It is because when you're redirecting or changing the focus, things tend to change. And when you put all of these options in front of children and when it's encouraged and celebrated as, um, you know, for example, ethnic studies, ethnic studies in California, you can find source documents that include Foucault and his ideas, um, ideas and concepts from queer theory. But what you will also find is a maze videos and you will also find um, the idea that um, if you are straight or cisgender, that you are oppressing others. And then students will actually be taught forms of resistance. Um, so, and, and I just want to make note of one more thing. I have a friend who is a film producer. He pitched a, a new film series 
years ago to all of the big, you know, companies down in Southern California, Pixar, et cetera, et cetera. It was a, it was a show designed for like three and four year olds. And every single one of them said, what is going to be your LGBTQ uh, storyline? And because that's not something that they immediately had planned, they were shut down immediately. So is it happening in society? Is it funded? Is, is there concerns here about what teacher, I mean, this is the California Teachers Association as well. They voted for health equity as something that they wanted to lobby for. Cause in California, you're 12. That means you can leave campus and access reproductive health care, abortion, birth control, et cetera. But for health equity, they want to work towards kids being able to obtain hormone therapy without the barrier of parental permission. And this is the direction we're going. Thanks for that, Kelly. Uh, so, uh, so we are about to wrap up, so I'm just going to give everyone a chance to have final thoughts. If we can keep it uh, a bit brief, that'd be brilliant. Money Penny, you've had your hand up for a while. If you can just give us a wrap up, that'd be appreciated. Yeah, just quickly, the British Medical Journal 10 hours ago gave a little bit of a disturbing update on what's called GIDS. This is the gender identity service that the NHS has been operating through something called the Tavistock Clinic. Um, very controversial, in- investigated by BBC Newsnight um, from the age of 11 and has been seen to be uh, giving puberty blockers. Um, a lot of staff left the clinic. The clinic was meant to be shut down in spring of 23, i.e. now, but the NHS have not given the six-month notice that is expected, and the new regional clinics that were going to replace it have not appeared or had any discussion. So it's the British Medical Journal just warning tonight uh, or yesterday, if you're, depending if you're in the U.S., um, that there is a lot of concern that this is not being shut down as it should. And it was investigated by somebody on the panel, mentioned Hillary, Hillary Gass, who was doing the investigation. Um, her investigation came up and said it is not safe for children. The damning official verdict of Dr. Hillary Cass. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. And then Jennifer, your final thoughts? Yeah, I just wanted to say that, you know, there's something about uh, talk about keeping secrets from parents um, that the problem is that every single one of us, the minute our child mentions the word transgender, are treated as if we are a danger to our child. And there's no evidence, you know, without any evidence. In fact, I was up at the school volunteering for 11 years before this happened. The one year I quit volunteering was when it started happening in the school. And, uh, you know, clearly I was a supportive parent, but all of a sudden, all the knowledge they had about me went out the window the moment my daughter used the word transgender. So that's an assumption that people are having and it's happening all over. I talk to parents every day who experience a similar situation. So thank you for that. And then let's go for Joa. Have you got any last thoughts you want to wrap up? Yeah, um, I grew up in America, but I live in Portugal now. And it was one of the first countries to legalize same-sex marriage and kind of looked into why um, it's so accepted here. I think a lot of people remember a video woman made 10 hours of walking through New York City showing how she got harassed. There was another video made here in Lisbon where two gay couples would go around kissing each other and filming and showing that no one reacts at all. And it happened because it's normalized. Um, 
the TV presenters here, a lot of them are gay, have been gay since the eighties. And I think if, I think if we stop meddling and teachers stop meddling and just normalize it, you have books in school that have John and Jane, but you have books in school that are Joan and Jane and not making it a big deal. That's, I think when we finally get to an ideal place, but as normal, government bodies overreach trying to correct something and overdo it. And and I don't think it's like a a uh, technology firms are investing and there's some conspiracy happening. I think it just happens because um, people think they're doing the right thing. Thanks for that, Joe. Uh, Sarah, your final thoughts? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think there is a lot of government overreach in this. I mean, if we look, I, I mean, there's a lot of money in this, as we talked about a little bit, too, where they're making medical patients for life with big pharma. And yes, that's partnered with Bill Gates, um, has, you know, sales agents who sell the doctors prescription drugs and, you know, they can prescribe their drugs. So doctors have a financial incentive. Um, and then we can look at the money laundering cycle in Illinois, for example, where Governor Pritzker funded the Lori's Children's Gender, Gender Clinic and at the Lori's Children's Hospital in Chicago. Then that clinic gives away sex toys to the local schools for their comprehensive sex education programs, which the governor himself has implemented into law. So it's his or his administration implemented. So there is a lot of that type of cycle happening all over the country. Even here in Georgia, they're trying to put clinics in schools. So it's not just happening in places like California's um, where children are going to be allowed to make their own medical decisions. Thank you for that. Joanna, you got your hand up. If you can give us a brief wrap up, that'd be appreciated. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that some excellent points have been made. Um, and I was originally introduced to this topic through interaction with my patients um, and then explored it further um, just through um, conversations around ethics and informed consent. Um, but one thing that I just wanted to iterate, this is a, a psychiatric and medical diagnosis. And if this was any other issue, you know, whether it be, um, you know, anxiety, depression, if it's, if it's something that's shared between a, a student and their teacher, um, you know, a parent should be involved. This is, this is treated differently than other diagnoses. And I think that that's really just kind of the point that I wanted to make. Thank you for that. And Ian, any, any final thoughts? No, this is a great space. I think we need to have this conversation a lot more. You know, this problem is not going away. I think the uh, it may have started uh, as one thing, you know, uh, ideological, and that is obviously still ongoing. We can't dismiss that. But it's also become a money issue now, right? It's an $8 billion industry by 2025. We're looking at the, uh, you know, a media industry that benefits from this. We were looking at a lot of nonprofit organizations that uh, originally, like Stonewall, for example, uh, started to you know as as a means to bring about uh, equality for homosexuals, and now they've moved on from gays and lesbians. They don't even recognize lesbians anymore. Uh, it's moved on to transgenderism because it's the new cause. I mean, they get a lot of money from this. Uh, uh, they get a lot of funding, corporate funding. So it, it's kind of an endless loop, an endless cycle. It just mounts up to be more and more and more, and you know it's damaging a lot of young people because I think, as Dr. Danish pointed out earlier. We don't know the long-term effects of giving kids hormone blockers. I mean, these are drugs that we prescribe to rapists, to to pedophiles, to people who, you know, commit bestiality. And and this is stuff we're giving to kids nowadays. I mean, it's unconscionable for for doctors to even do this. 
right? It's one thing to give it to an adult who can, you know, have informed consent. And even then I would disagree with that. I, I don't think it should be possible to mutilate somebody like that if you're a doctor and you take the Hippocratic Oath. But we're talking about kids here. So we're not talking about adults. We're talking about kids who are being subjected to this. And you have a lot of influencers online, uh, people like Eli Ehrlich, for example, who sell drugs illegally, right? What he's doing is, is, is illegal in most places, in most states even, cutting up drugs and sending it to kids, uh, having them, you know, uh, a him or whatever. I mean, that's, that, that shit is illegal. It should be stopped immediately. You know, like it's unconscionable that this is even a thing that, that people can, you know, people like him can make the argument that, oh, he's saving kids' lives. No, you're not. Like, you're not a doctor, first of all. And even if you were, I mean, I question anything that this guy has to say. And it's people like that who are all over the place. You know, it sounds hyperbolic, but there's a lot of these guys out there and they're preying on your kids. You know, I think as as a society, we need to look after the ones, you know, the, the children who, who can't decide for themselves, who, who are, you know, they are defenseless. It's up to us to protect them. Thanks for that. Dr. Danish, your um, your final thoughts, if you can um, make them brief and concise. Yeah, I think it's very clear that we are dealing with a situation that we are not prepared for yet, especially as it pertains to children. And I think that what we need to do is have a deeper conversation around what is expedient and you know, compassionate versus what is safe. And as I mentioned with puberty blockers, there's just too much data right now about puberty blockers in children that's worth concern and should, I mean, it's it's surprising that it has not already halted a significant amount of the uh, the activity in that space already. And I think some of that's ideological, but I think some of that is being driven by what I would call misguided compassion. And I think that we, we, we really need to have a deeper discussion around gender dysphoria and how it affects children. And, and that's kind of the biggest question mark for me. I think for adults, it, it is what it is. But I, I think for children, it's a, it's a much deeper discussion. Thank you for Dr. Dan. Um Chris, if you can give us a very uh, brief and concise wrap, that'd be brilliant. Thank you. I want everyone to ask themselves what it means to have a gender identity. The defi- no one could define for me what it means for a child to be transgendered. You read the definition, but that definition is itself circular because it involves the word gender identity. Once people really look into this, they will learn that the entirety of this movement hinges on sexist, regressive stereotypes. My message is that there is no right way to be a girl or a boy. Our girls who are traditionally more masculine are beautiful girls. Tomboys are not actual boys. These drugs, these puberty blocking drugs for the doctors in the room, these are gonadotropin releasing hormone agonists, which stop the pituitary gland from releasing follicle stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. These are cancer drugs. These were given FDA approval to treat prostate cancer, endometriosis in women, but women can only go on this drug for six months. That's the recommendation because the side effects are so severe. Women who have had endometriosis will know what I'm talking about. This drug that's normally used is called Lupron. This stops a girl's breasts from growing. It stops their hips from expanding. It stops a boy's penis from growing. I put up in the nest, it's the president of WPATH, Marcy Bowers, admitting that none of the boys as adults have had any sexual function. 
They've never been able to have an orgasm. And he's literally spitballing during this Zoom call, which includes Johanna Olson Kennedy from the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, where they say, what do we do? Do we let a little bit of puberty happen? Do we take them off the blockers, let some puberty happen? Do we delay them? Because intimacy is very important in adult relationships. Yeah, you think? We are turning children into anorgasmic, sterilized, maimed, lifelong pharmaceutical patients forever reliant on some external source of hormones. For these boys who get these sex reassignment surgeries, they're doing this to children. Kaiser Permanente, Kellen Lockhart, has admitted they've done these penile inversion surgeries on 16-year-old boys. They have to dilate for the rest of their life. And I'll tell you one quick story. I tweeted out the story of a 25-year-old man who'd had sex reassignment surgery when he was younger. He's just figured out that he's gay. But because he was more effeminate, and who knows what was going on in his family, this was because he didn't conform to stereotypes. He was indoctrinated to believe he was trans. So he had this surgery, and he developed what's called a fistula. It's this passageway that formed from his urinary tract into his neovagina. And he's been leaking urine continuously for five years. He gets infections all the time. One of these days, one of these infections can kill him. Doctors can't fix it. They just want to close him up completely. They don't know how to do that properly either. There's an indigenous man in Canada who just signed up for medical assistance in dying because he had the surgery done. These are very severe physical interventions, and they're now being done to kids. My 11-year-old girl, you can blame me, but I think she still believes in Santa Claus. But if she told me when she was a boy, she would be getting given these drugs, no questions asked, because the practice today is simply to affirm their gender identity. These are children. Have we forgotten what children are? They're beautiful. They're perfect just as they are. And we need to leave them alone. Most of them would see this gender dysphoria desist during puberty. We know this. And if they want to do something as an adult, that's a different conversation. But let's leave our kids alone. And we need to keep having conversations. And we need to keep educating ourselves about this. So thank you so much, everyone, for joining this space. I really appreciate having the opportunity to speak. Catherine, uh, how do you think the space went? And uh, if you can give your final thoughts as well. Thank you. Um, I think, well, you know, I've, I've been trying to engage in this conversation with as much of an open mind as I can. And uh, definitely listened to a lot of stories, had a lot of conversations. I, I think where I agree with probably with everyone in the room is that we need to have more conversations, more open conversations. So it's good. I think the suppression of conversations on this topic is, is a dangerous thing. And I think it has led to some terrible outcomes. I think there is more nuance than people sometimes attribute to it. And I think sort of the, you know, I think sometimes we do forget the, the child's, um, you know, uh, independence in in some of this though i understand the concerns i do think that uh, a lot of this has you know turned into um dangerous practice uh because this kind of idea of affirming um things and so i think where we are now is not a is not a healthy place and so in my mind i'm trying to figure out you know what is the best way forward that is going to protect 
children. And I think, um, and, and, you know, whether they really are trans and they're suffering as a result or they have started to come to other things and other conditions and are making certain choices as a result. Um, and I think that's a very difficult place to navigate right now. Um, but I think what's important to remember in these conversations, I think, I think there's a tendency to often vilify people. And I think it's important to remember that even the parents that might choose that path to, you know, maybe transition their children as much as people disagree with it. Um, I think what's important is to have that conversation to vilify these people, because I think they too want the best for their children and maybe it's misguided, but I think the path forward is to have these conversations and to educate them and to show them the case studies and not to call them evil. And and that's what I've been seeing a lot going on lately. And I think that is not the way, that's how you shut down conversations instead of opening them up. And so I'd like to see more of engagement and education happening uh, instead of what I've been seeing happening lately. So that's that's where I'm at with this. And I'll, I'll hand back the mic to you. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on this. Thanks for that, Catherine. Yeah. Um, so for me, um, I just think, you know, when it comes to children, we have to make sure that we protect them. And that means not experimenting on them. And it feels like this whole process has been some form of like experimentation, not in terms of physical, but psychological, which is actually much more scary, you know, to think that children are not impacted by outside factors is uh, is a misnomer. We know children are impacted very easily, both based on data, as well as my own personal anecdotal experience in schools. You can influence children into believing most things, believing most ideas and believing even minutias. And then separate to that, I mean, the reason why I was asking Scott, who came, who joined us as well, and that was a, a privilege for us all. But the reason I was asking, because I don't agree with this position that Hollywood or these type of industries don't have an impact. They have a significant impact. And it's actually very much a, a, a strategy because we know when it comes to Hollywood or the music industry, they have... Uh, they have significant influence on government. And we know that based on even somebody who attends this space a lot where where Hollywood and the music industry impacted the United States government, who then forced the New Zealand government to basically go after Kim.com. So they, and, and, and so when the industry is allowed to impact on society, which we see it, the impact on youth, and they have a significant impact the information that they provide or they give to them is very focused and there's reasons for that. And I can provide many more examples in the future spaces where that happens. And so I do believe that there is an idea and agenda to put ideas in there. And you see that, and and, and I don't believe it's based on monetary reasons because we're seeing when it comes to a lot of these industries, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's um, TVs like Netflix, they're failing they're failing and these movies where this is getting forced on have been failing. Marvel now is failing for them specific reasons because these ideas are forced. And so if it's for monetary reasons, they would be shifting away from that now, but they're not. So I think there is an agenda and and, and, and some of it is based on capitalism, but there's a, a variety of other reasons as well. Mar- I think this too, yeah. um, not to start a new discussion, but just to kind of, I think what Scott had meant and, and just me being in the industry myself, um, I think what it is, is it's not that there is, um, I think what he meant is that it's not so much that there isn't um, 
there's not like an agenda as in there's a bunch of people kind of get together. I don't think we can deny that there's an influence. There is. And that's why, I mean, people make movies often to connect with audiences and to have that influence. But, um, but it's, it comes like, because I'm around <laughs> those people all the time, you know, it, it comes from like certain beliefs. And so a lot of the people who are in that industry, they share these beliefs and, and tend to go into that industry with these shared beliefs and also the things that get funded um you know i think people are afraid to even to even pitch a project that does not conform to these kind of shared beliefs because i do know people who don't share them but are afraid to to even pitch uh ideas that are different so i think that's why you're sort of seeing this these kinds of ideologies and the people who approve and green greenlit projects that's kind of what's happening but I know I get you the point that you're making, and that's, I guess, that's a larger um, conversation as to why that keeps happening despite losing money. Um, and that's a broader conversation, but uh, we can discuss that a little bit later on, perhaps. Uh, but back to you, Mario. Yeah, that's pretty much it. It was a great discussion. Um, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Uh, I think we'll do a, a tomorrow's a completely different topic. We'll probably cover just the developments in the Ukraine war. We were thinking about doing it today, but it's getting late. So, uh, yeah, I think that will be the focus for tomorrow. Um, we didn't go through the Project Veritas video, so if you want to check them out, uh, <clears throat> you can go to Project Veritas's profile and check out the video, uh, which uh, Slyman talked about earlier, and uh, we did a thread summarizing the video as well because it's a pretty long video. So you can go through that on my profile. Uh, otherwise, appreciate you all for joining. It was a great discussion, and thanks to all the panelists that are here now that were here before. And for the audience, I'll see you all tomorrow. Thank you, everyone.